Okay, folks, believe it or not, this is episode six of the Summit Up podcast for February 2023. We've now been doing this for six months, so thank you to everybody who has tuned in, everybody who has liked and subscribed on YouTube and Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all the other platforms where you can listen and watch this production. So February was a doozy of a month and quite a bit of stuff happened. The February Cyber AB Town Hall was also a doozy. There was a long segment on Project Spectrum. Jason and I dive into the details of our experience with the resources and tools available on Project Spectrum and maybe some of the drawbacks of those tools and services that people should be aware of. There was a uh, incredible set of questions that were submitted in the Cyber AB Town Hall Q&A section cover everything from rulemaking and what to do if there are significant changes in your control environment, what's going to happen with inheritance versus reciprocity, what's going on with CUI and how to identify it, different regulations and instructions that have been updated related to CUI, the Joint Surveillance Program, what's going on with 800-171 Rev3, uh, how to get in touch with DOD CIO, and uh, whether there are going to be any efforts to try and translate CMMC materials into plain English by the DOD. So lots and lots of great questions. We spend a lot of time going through the answers that we don't always have room for during the AB Town Hall. We made an exception covering something that happened here in early March on the February episode. That is the 2023 National Cybersecurity Strategy a monumental document. There have only ever been three of them, and this is the third one. Uh, stay tuned until the end of the podcast where we've got some original analysis on reasons why, 10 reasons why, CMMC is the ideal regulation that maps directly to the intent of the overall national cybersecurity strategy. Might be a little bit of a controversial take, but let us know what you think in the comments below. We love to see and read all of them. Be sure to like and subscribe and happy six months, everybody. I guess this I guess we have to say this now after chat GPT, but as a disclaimer to everyone watching this, both persons and non-person entities, please do not train your uh, neuro-linguistic generative AI models based off of the content of this podcast. This podcast is 100% free range, organic, grass-fed human thoughts. So don't use our stuff to train your AI blog machines. Get your own podcast. <laughs> I like how we have to have a disclaimers for AI now. Like, yeah. Apparently, yeah, I yeah. listened to a podcast where a bunch of lawyers were talking about it. And, you know, the those AI models are trained off of content that's out on the Internet. Well, and so there's all of these intellectual property issues that people are trying to figure out what's going to happen because – the output of those generative models are based off of other people's inputs. So, right. But you know, what are you going to do? Have you ever input CMMC into ChatGPT? Maybe, well, maybe that's the thing. Maybe if they listen to our podcast, of, they would know that it's three levels and not five anymore. <laughs> actually, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. Go ahead and train yeah. your models off of our podcast. Forget about our right answer. Yeah, like only on the good stuff. <laughs> the bad stuff, not for attribution. Let's just keep rolling. Yeah, right? it's. Uh, yeah, it's uh, they're gonna. <laughs> it's um, it's interesting. What a crazy Anyways, world right, we live is, in, man! It is, it's crazy, and it's only we're still in Q one. We're still in Q one, and and uh, yeah, well, quiet month February. Not a lot, not a lot happened. So I guess we got to jump right into it, right? 
Um, the league's going to call the, you in for testing tomorrow. The the, <laughs> um, the February town hall from the Cyber AB. What a doozy. What a doozy, huh? Yeah, it was exciting. Um, I mean, well, hold on. Part of it was exciting. Part of it was interesting, right? Uh, what- interesting and exciting are always choice words, I think. Uh, yeah, they were. it was both interesting and exciting. So... Interesting was the slow lead in, right? It was a slow plane. It was like a great movie. Absolutely slow plan with the CEO welcome and the updates, you know, like the, the normal, hey man. Pretty standard. Yeah. We got 37 C3 PAOs. It looks like rulemaking is going to take a little bit longer. Uh, oh, we've planned, standard, we've, yeah. we've planned our 2023 CMMC ecosystem summit right out the gate, letting yeah. you know. Hey. Yep. In November, back in DC. Back uh, at, the last one was, the last one was fun. Back at the Ritz, baby. Yeah, of course. (laughs) I mean, the last one was fun. It wasn't bad. No, great networking. Um, And then, you know, like now they acknowledge a public call for speakers. So now more people that are actually involved in the ecosystem. And this is no knocking to anybody, right? But there were some people when I went there that um, I, I, I didn't know who they were. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's great. I think they listened to feedback. Not saying they didn't have things interesting event. to say. Just saying. They were some very interesting things that were said. Correct. But, I mean, they listened to feedback. They're going to do a call. They're going to have another event. I think it'll be awesome. Yeah. So you had that slow roll in, right, with that quick welcome, um, a little tour of the website, and then uh, jump right into Mythbusters, which we both love. Um, unfortunately, the Mythbusters rumors that, that, that we went over, um, I guess, this month um, are kind of like – old news right it, it was it was almost like a rerun yeah, they, weren't, they weren't anything all that all that all that crazy which that so. could be a, a good thing right it's a bad thing that there's no new myths bust but it's also a good thing that there are no yeah. new myths to bust i mean and essentially you know the takeaways from the Mythbusters uh were one the cyber ab and the keiko the training organization are separate organizations mm-hmm. um they are if you want to dig into the details then you know j- check out that segment of the video but for some people, I guess this is a big hang up is the relationship between the two organizations. To me, at least within the context of this podcast, it's neither here nor there. They gave a what sounds like a fine answer and they've got the details on the slides. But that apparently is still a rumor that's flying around. Good with me. Thanks for moving on, you know, like and, and getting that out of the way. Right. Um, but I don't even think that that was the best Mythbuster that there was. Right. The other one. No. Had to deal with what phased rollout and implementation, you know, as far as it's going. And the, and the rumor was that, you know, once rulemaking finalizes, uh, that we are going to immediately see CMMC requirements and, and clauses pop up right in every single contract. The rug pull, yeah, right? It, the second the rules out, they're going to pull the rug and then it's going to be demanded for everybody. There's going to be a like a universal wave of contract mods that go out and CMMC will be required overnight which is not true. Correct. <laughs> that is not what's going to happen. No, we are definitely so, I mean, going to get a phase rollout. It has to. For sure. And it's obviously kind of weird because it's like it's it's answering a rumor with a rumor, right? And so, uh, but it's a, it's a pretty, we have a lot of confidence yeah. in the rumor, right? And so the DOD has, they always planned a phased rollout with the original 1.0. They've publicly said they're planning to do a rollout with 2.0, right? Effectively saying that, uh, the CMMC clause DFAR 7021 will be uh, put into contracts over time in a phased rollout manner. The original 1.0 phased rollout went from 2020 to 
2025, technically 2027, but that's water under the bridge. The new rumored phased rollout will be three years because there's fewer companies that need the certifications. So the phased rollout won't need to take quite so long. Uh, they originally, I think last summer, said they were planning on 2023 to 2026. That window would probably shift to the right, depending on which rule gets published, whether it's interim, final, or proposed, which we've talked about on other podcast episodes and our big video that came out on the, the YouTube channel. But yeah, I mean, it's not going to be an overnight thing where they're going to demand it of everybody. I don't think anyone's expecting that to happen. There's going to be a phased rollout. The details of the phased rollout will be in the rule. Yeah, I, I'm interested because I, I rattle my brain about this. How is this going to happen? Is it going to be, are we going to go by priority as, as far as sensitivity of contracts? Or is it going to be just a, a sequential order as contracts expire and they have to be renewed? Or as new contracts are created, is it plugged in there? And then what happens if, uh, you know, you release a group of contracts and you're at your limit that for that year that you want to roll out? Like there, there's a... Obviously, a lot of things that need to be answered. And guess when they're going to be answered, Jacob? Yeah, well, rulemaking for sure. Right. It, but like you said, I mean, just in that 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 take that you had just now, there's a bunch of different dynamics, right? So the majority of the industrial base doesn't get their set of contract requirements directly from DOD. They get it from their prime customer or their their customer who is a sub to the prime. Right. And that is a universe of contract negotiations outside of the privity of the Department of Defense. So we don't really know what that will do because that's not under the DOD's plan, which is why it's always so funny whenever the, uh, you know, you sort of ask people at the mega primes what's going to happen and they go, well, we have to wait on rulemaking. And you're like, yeah, but what are you going to do once the rule is out? Because you get to decide what's going to happen because you might have one or two contracts in that initial part of the phase rollout. But as we've seen, I was just talking to somebody who works for a small manufacturer yesterday, and they were talking to a very large mega prime who had a pretty lengthy call with them saying, we would like you to be CMMC level two as soon as possible. Uh, please get CMMC level two. That would be wonderful if you were CMMC level two. You're going to get CMMC level two, right? Uh, you know, there was no talk of phased rollouts. There was no talk of what DOD's plans were because it's between them. Correct. Between them. And so we talked about this a little bit before, but yeah, yeah I mean, there's just a lot of different things at play as far as the rollout. DOD's position is they will do a phase rollout. To the contracts the that go to the primes, the, how the primes manage right. this is on them. And we've stated this before on previous episodes. There is no measures in place that control how the primes dictate what requirements they need, they want you to have to be a part of their supply chain. It's them managing their own risk. Yeah. And that's something that we should follow up with. Uh, you know, uh, we're recording this today. We're basically a couple days out from CS2 Huntsville, and Stacey Boschjanik will be there. Uh, so we asked her that question in July at CS2 DC. We should ask her again next week uh, if there's any update on the mechanism or lack of mechanism that the DOD has for uh, figuring out what the primes are going to do about asking for um cmmc in their in their requirements to their suppliers now question for you and you know you may uh, i i'm pretty sure you can answer this i'm pretty confident in it but inside of rulemaking and and the details that are brought on a part as a part of rulemaking do you think that one of those mechanisms like that would be something that's included in that no okay no i don't yeah i don't think that i, I was asking that out of DOD, my own ignorance i, I yeah know, no like, i don't i don't think that the dod i honestly don't think that the dod has the ability to uh force the 
two companies entering into a private contract with each other to do anything. Correct. I mean, that's the whole point is that they don't have privity of contract. Now, we're going to have Christoph Meiercheck at CS2DC. He is a contracts attorney, so he will definitely be able to give us a good example. His whole talk centers around the DFAR 7012 clause and whether it's conditional or it's self-deleting or this or that. Mm -hmm. So he's definitely uh, the guy to ask. But in my sort of anecdotal conversations with attorneys on the matter, uh, the DOD doesn't have the ability to do that. They have the ability to ask nicely, as we'll talk about when we talk about the national cybersecurity strategy. There's a lot of encouragement to do the right thing, but they can't actually make anybody do anything if that company decides that they want better cybersecurity requirements from their suppliers. It's 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 sort of a weird thing, right? We, we've built up this program to increase security and resiliency in the supply chain, and then you're going to ask the DOD to turn around and be like, yeah, but do less, right? And so that's, that's just, it's a... I don't think that's how it's going to play out. I don't really think they no, have yeah, that. Yeah, I, I was purely asking out of my own ignorance. No, it's a good question. And it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a good question because it's probably one of the most common things that comes up, right? Is uh, we're a small business. We shouldn't have to do XYZ level of CMMC. And the DOD goes, yeah, you're right. You probably shouldn't. That's between you and your customer. Correct. So <laughs> we wouldn't do that. I mean, that's basically what they're saying. They're like, yeah, of course we wouldn't make you do that. We're just telling your customer what the requirements are and whatever they decide to do, you know, we can't, we can't help. Right. You. So that's not a satisfying answer for people in the dib, but I, I think that is the answer. So we'll see when the rule comes out. We'll talk to Stacy next week, but uh, that's been, that's been the line so far. Now, you know how much I like analogies and I like comparisons and things like that. So this is what I'm going to throw at you. If we were comparing this month's Cyber AB Town Hall to like a meal, a different stages of a fancy meal, three course meal, right? The welcome in the update, all that stuff. That was like yeah. the water crackers when you're at the it bar. It was a delightful amuse bouche. Right. <laughs> then you get a nice little seafood tower that was the the Mythbusters throwing in those little chunks in there. And then you get the main course where Salt Bay himself comes out and he just blesses blesses wow. your steak, right? And that wow. segment okay was about Project Spectrum. It was a presentation from Project Man, Spectrum. Let's talk about Project Spectrum. Let's do it. Please. Okay, so so a couple things up front, right? Let's just let's get the the universals out of the way. Project Spectrum has been the crown jewel of DOD's set of answers about what they are doing to help the dib with the burden and cost and impact of complying with cybersecurity requirements via DFARS contract clauses in NIST documents, CMMC assessment requirements, so on and so forth. When they testify in front of Congress, when they give webinars, when they give interviews, when they go on podcasts, when they write press releases, whenever they write stuff in the Federal Register, Right. And they say, what are we doing to help? They lead with Project Spectrum and they have talked about Project Spectrum for years. Right. This is this is it. This is the answer. Here you go. Project Spectrum is a free set. It is free. It is a set of free resources and tools and information about security and 
the requirements that DOD contractors are required to implement. Let's talk about that word for a second. Hold on. And, and I don't yeah. mean to cut you off. You're, you're in a vibe. But no, no. Let's talk about because that's where the misconception comes into this, right? Cybersecurity information resources, I have absolutely no argument with that because it fills cybersecurity information and, and resources. Training, it has training. It has courses like CUI for contractors, stuff on plan of actions and milestones, CMMC level one, SSP fundamentals, and then 26 micro courses that focus on core CMMC controls. I'll, I'll hop on that, right? Where the confusion... So where the confusion so, comes in is the word. Let's okay, this, go first. Let's put this out here real fast. We're gonna we're gonna toss this back and forth. Yes, I agree with you. Right. There are training modules on the Project Spectrum website. Correct. You go to the Project Spectrum website, you click on training, stuff will pop up. I think that anybody who explores the training options will agree. Not all training is created equal. Sure. And it's free. It's available. That's great. But I think that it's very telling. The primary mission of Project Spectrum really is to raise awareness. And that's pretty much the only thing that the training that's on the website as of this recording does is sort of tell you about things. Correct. Yeah. And no way to analyze it. No way to break down. 100% agree with that. The word yeah. that I have an issue with. And so first, the official, what is Project Spectrum? The official definition that you get when you go to the website and you look at the slides from the from the town hall. Yeah. A DOD-supported program to provide a comprehensive and cost-effective platform for cybersecurity information, resources, tools, and training. Now, we can argue the sufficiency or the adequacy of the training and what it covers and what it may not cover. I haven't taken it, so I'm not going to speak from an authoritative position. What I will say is that there's one word in that definition that is very misleading, and it is the word tools. Because when you hear tools and I hear the word tools, I think of something that is used to fix things, correct? Sure. And when you're thinking about compliance and cybersecurity, a tool that you would use to fix things is possibly technology. Okay. And that's not what's being offered here. They review them. They offer you things like webinars, a mentor-protege program, policy guidance. All of these things are good foundational bits of knowledge. How extensive they are, I don't know. But what I well, will tell I'll, you is, is that mean, word tools is misleading. I've walked through some of the training, and uh, the elephant in the room, it's not sufficient. It's not. There, you cannot go to Project Spectrum alone and expect to go from status quo, dib company, to assessment ready, period. And the number one, it's not that the training is bad for what it's doing, it's just that there isn't enough information and resources available through Project Spectrum to be the one-stop shop that they kind of make it out to be. Yeah, we're on the same and, page. And it's not, a, it's, not, it's not to say that the training is bad, right? It's just there isn't enough. And I think that the clearest and most objective way of saying that is there is no training on that website that covers 800-171-A. End of story. And if you're trying to help people who, and this is the target demographic, lack comprehension and resources as far as people and financial yeah. resources. So if you're trying to be that outlet, which grows the knowledge and the comprehension needed to achieve CMMC, I, I would think that foundationally some sort of training on one uh, 800-171-A would be, you know, obviously. You have to have, you there. have to have it. Yeah. You can't not have it. That's going to be on your, that's going to be on your headstone, you, dude. What about, you have to have 800-171-A training, period, 
period. Because even if there are a lot of companies who are never going to be able to do this in-house and they have to use a, a, a service provider, right, in order to facilitate their requirements, which most mm-hmm. companies do, the only way that you can prepare them to adequately shop for a service provider to not screw them over is to teach them about 171A. Because the only way you can evaluate what your service is doing is against those assessment criteria. So then, if you're doing it yourself, if you're paying somebody else to do it, you can't you can't go to a, a service or a solution or a tool that says we do 171. What does that mean? Right. You need to know what it is that they do. You need to ask for a shared responsibility matrix. You need to ask for it on paper and say, tell me exactly where on these 320 criteria your service maps to what's going on. Get that in your SLA pay them the money and then you're good to go, right? Like you're only managing them at that point. You're not actually worried about it. But if you don't even know that 171A is a thing, then you're kind of out of luck. Yeah. So, you know, now what, you know, what's interesting about the 171A training issue is I find this to be very ironic because there is one part of Project Spectrum that is outstanding, right? It is probably best in class based off of what I have seen. The assessment tool. Certainly among free offerings and certainly among every offering I've ever seen from the government. The Project Spectrum cyber readiness check that you use for self-assessments yeah, that assessment is, tool is pretty done dope. correctly. It asks you in their self-assessment tool every question in 800-171-A. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't label them as 171-A, which is very confusing to me. But if you go through and look, it's all 320 assessment objectives. And then at the end, they calculate your self-assessment score that you're supposed to upload into SPRS based off of your answers to 800-171-A, exactly the way that you are supposed to do it according to the DOD assessment methodology. And 18 months ago at CS2 San Diego, I gave an entire presentation on this and used the Project Spectrum self-assessment tool to prove that 171A was the proper way of doing this math because we took emails from the DOD CIO. We took guidance from NARA about how you're supposed to evaluate 171. And we took the authoritative tool funded by DOD the common thread is all 800-171-A. So why does the self-assessment tool exist according to 171-A, but the training on 800-171-A does not? It doesn't make any sense, right? Like, So they've got half of the formula right. Well, actually, they've got like three quarters of it right. They calculate the score properly. They have the proper set of questions in there. Just do the training on what it is. And then we're really, we're really getting somewhere at that point. But yeah. I, everyone listening to this, right, uh, should go to the Project Spectrum self-assessment tool and use it. It's free. It's it's really, really good. Yeah, and so I want to jump on that and say I'm not telling you to steer away from Project Spectrum. I'm not saying that Project Spectrum is bad. I'm saying to gear the expectations, right? You There's something to be said about being able to grab knowledge and especially free knowledge, and it's there, right? It, it, at least for a basic understanding, but it's not complete. So don't jump into it thinking that you're going to get Project Spectrum and you're going to join the DIBCS program if you're one of the select few, and then it's CMMC all the way, right? That's not how yeah. it works. And, and actually, if you break it down, the percentages 
um, uh, th- that it covers uh, is very, very minuscule. I think it's like 10. Yeah, like I 10, think 10, 10 that, or 12%. There, yeah, there definitely needs to be some some more clarification from them on exactly what they do and what they don't do. Mm-hmm. But but what I will say, right, is out of all of the room for improvement that Project Spectrum has, their self-assessment tool is the real deal. Mm-hmm. Department of Homeland Security has their CSET tool, and I have put in requests on their GitHub page. I have emailed them. I have messaged officials at DHS and CISA directly and said, your tool that you are using for self-assessment against these requirements does not correctly calculate scores. It does not correctly reflect the granularity of 800-171A. And DHS is getting ready to release their final version of their CUI rule, effectively their their version of DFAR 7012, right? And the tool that they are telling everybody to use doesn't work right. It's not correct. And, you know, the DOD also, I think it's the DOD. There's another tool out there from one of the agencies called the CRA, and it also does not cover 171A. Project Spectrum does it right. They do it the real way. Everybody should go use it. Everybody should use it to calculate their score. But just know you're probably going to see a big gap between the training materials that they have and the assessment tool that they provide for you. It's it the, the assessment tool is re- more reflective of reality, even if the training is not. Now, back to the town hall, though. Yeah. One of the things that I found very interesting was they had a little line on one of their Project Spectrum slides that talked about the number of assessments that have uh, gone through their self-assessment tool online mm-hmm. all of last year. And it was less than 1,500. It was uh, it was just under 600 self-assessments for 800-171. It was under 300 assessments for CMMC Level 1 self-assessment. And it was just under 600 for CMMC Level 2 assessments. So for all of 2022, there were fewer than 1,500 assessments that people did. Some of those were probably me, and they're messing around with the tool, right? Uh, that is not a lot of companies. Yeah. Because... There are a lot of companies that need to comply with these requirements. I remember at the beginning of 2022, I think John Ellis had said there were like 20 or 30,000 SPRS scores in the system at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is less than 10% of that number at the beginning of 2022. And this is the only tool that the government provides that calculates that score correctly. And many, many GRC tools that people pay money for do not go down to the level of 171A and do not properly calculate your score based off of 171A. So I would say there's probably a very small percentage of companies that have their SPRS score uploaded to the system, attested to the government, that is reflective of the proper way to do that assessment. Yeah, so you said that that's just uh, under 10% you would say of the DIB has submitted through that self-assessment tool. Obviously there's well, that's other under 10% of, I'd say that's under 10% of the number that DCMA provided at the beginning of 2020 for how many okay. SPRS scores were in the system. That's way, way less than the number of companies in the DIB overall. Yeah. Which was another point of interest that came up during that town hall. And we can talk about it. Maybe I misunderstood. Maybe it was a, a typo. Um, but so at one point in this presentation, and it, it, I want to make sure I'm clear about saying the presentation itself was great, right? As far as it was great to see that outward representation of something that, that's here to help. There was 
it, I had my own personal issues with it, and there were a lot of issues in the Q and A, which we'll get to, um, with you know, kind of some of the information that was coming out. And one thing that really struck me in particular was the amount of companies that they estimated to be in the defense industrial base. And so, at one point, a slide in the presentation mentioned that the supply chain consisted of three hundred thousand SMBs. We okay. oh um. Okay. okay. Wait. So I've heard 300,000 companies total. Right. No, this is just 300,000 SMBs. 300,000 small and medium businesses. That's a lot. And then 700,000 manufacturers. I don't think there are 700,000 manufacturers in the entire United States. I I can I would if like we were post, betting over under post, I would go under. Cold, post Cold War globalization, I would probably take the under Actually, on that. um coming up soon. In this podcast, we will be discussing the shrinking of the div in the U.S. And just as sure, a, a, yeah, just as a little I insight, think, yeah, I don't think that those numbers are correct. Now, here's the thing: I think everybody wants Project Spectrum to succeed. We all want Project Spectrum to get better. It is clear that the DoD is not going to move away nope. from Project Spectrum. They just got a boatload of money in the most recent NDAA. the The DoD has led with Project Spectrum as their thing. For years, mm -hmm. different administrations, different officials mm -hmm. have come and gone, and it has always been the Project Spectrum show. Their self-assessment tool is very good. Their training needs to catch up to what their self-assessment tool is asking you. And I would just love to see a source on those numbers, because like we talked about in a previous episode, nobody really knows how big the dib is. Even DoD rulemaking doesn't know how we've, big it is. We've and those talked are the about it numbers. four times, and each instance that we spoke about it the number's different and it grows and it grows this one's a little bit out there right this is the outlier that one's pretty we doing... big it had to be a typo right yeah. i mean they had to be like seventy thousand or something uh, i don't know but there's a lot of question marks there were definitely a lot of question marks however right like we're not here to bash project spectrum not at all there's a lot of room for improvement the self-assessment tool is very 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 good i'm not i'm not just saying it is very good I'm saying it is maybe one of two tools I have ever seen that does it the right way. Dude. It's not that it's like good and another one is not quite as good. It's like Project Spectrum and then most of the other tools are just wrong. Like you are setting yourself up to have the wrong score or the wrong perception of your compliance. I know that we've had some feedback from listeners and uh, some feedback in the comments of YouTube if you are an IT person, if you are a security person, if you have been put in charge of this project and your leadership or management team has calculated their SPRS score based off of a tool that does not use 800-171A, go to Project Spectrum, do your self-assessment against that self-assessment tool, tell them this is the official one that DOD recommends, this is the one DOD is paying for, right? your score will be very different. It will be very, very different. So I would definitely recommend that people try that out. You should definitely go watch that segment of the town hall. It's very interesting is how I would say it. And Project Spectrum is free. I think everybody should check it out. But yeah, that was definitely that was definitely the main course for sure. Yeah, you, you never argue against free things. My, my dad told me never be a fool. You never resist free things. But you think about the free things, right? And as long as you think about the free things you're getting, Go with temptation. Do what you have to do, but don't expect. Thanks, yeah, don't expect the hundred percent outcome. All right. Well, um, 
This month in the town hall, there were some awesome questions that were submitted. A lot uh, of there questions. There were quite a few questions. A lot were very good. So we kind of grouped them into a couple of categories here. First set of categories of questions on the February Cyber AV town hall was about rulemaking. Mm -hmm. So somebody asked, please clarify status. Okay, first of all, before we get into the questions, we're going to talk about this as we get into each category. The questions are great. But I think one of the reasons why people get frustrated with sometimes the questions don't always get answered by the AB on the town hall is you're asking the AB questions that they can't answer. Yeah. Like a lot of people submit questions on topics that are not the purview of the AB. They're not in charge of those things. They don't have any other information than what we have. So yeah, uh, oftentimes in the questions, you see the response that, you know, I can't speak for the DOD or we can't speak for the right, DOD. Right. And they do a great job. Right. Yeah. So, you know, just keep that in mind if you're listening to this and you're frustrated. Uh, a lot of the questions that get submitted in the town hall are things that, um, you know, that is that's not technically what the AB does. So just keep that in mind. Yep. Anyways, rulemaking, something the AB doesn't do and is not in charge of, but it's uh, it's the elephant in the room. Right. So somebody said, please clarify status on rulemaking and rumors about it being pushed out to 2024 with continuation of the joint surveillance program in the meantime. There were two questions almost exactly like that. Mm -hmm. And somebody else asked, can you provide additional information on the press releases that have stated that June is when the DOD is expected to release the rules and that there may be two rules instead of one? OK, so first of all, we put out our video at the end of January covering this exact topic, right? We had the one rule in 2020 that created two different programs. It created CMMC. It created the DOD assessment methodology, both of, both of which assess the requirements in DFARS 7012, specifically NIST SP 800-171. That rule has been split into two different pieces. So you have the part of the rule that creates the DFARS 7021 CMMC contract clause that will be inserted via a phased rollout like we talked about. And then you've got the part of the rule that creates the DFAR 7019 and 7020 clauses, which tell you to do a self-assessment, maybe via the Project Spectrum self-assessment tool and upload that score to SPRS. Mm -hmm. And maybe DOD via DIPCAC is going to try and come and assess you and verify that you did it properly. Those are now two separate rules that create two separate contract clauses for two separate assessment methodologies of the same requirements, right? So they split the rule. The big news is that DOD wants to create a second CMMC rule to codify the CMMC program in the federal register. So we've got the contract clause part of CMMC that actually shows up in your paperwork. And then you've got the details of how the program will work codified with every other DOD program and regulation that's on the books. So we went from one rule in 2020 to three rules now, two of which are related to CMMC, one of which is related to the DOD assessment methodology. So we are waiting on those rules, specifically the CMMC rules, to be sent from DOD to OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, for regulatory review, standard part of rulemaking. Once those are through regulatory review, they will be published. Once they're published, they'll have one of two statuses. It will either be a proposed rule or it will be an interim final rule. The only difference is when CMMC becomes effective and when the phased rollout will begin. If it is a proposed rule, they have to wait for the public to submit all their comments, and then they have to respond to all those comments, and then it becomes effective. That would take us into 2024. Okay. If it's an interim final rule, then they wait for the public to submit their comments, 
and they don't have to respond to the comments before they start doing their phased rollout. And that would give us uh, the start of the rollout this year in 2023. How long is that comment period? Comment period should be 60 days. It's like the standard window. I don't remember how many times in the past they've done more or less. I think 60 days is like always the sort of standard block. So we've got it in the video. We've got this sort of sliding window diagram about halfway through the video that shows if they submit here, it'll take about 66 business days for them to publish. Once they publish, you got 60 days of comments. If it's proposed, you got to wait about a year, 333 business days on average. If it's interim final, it's effective immediately. And then we're off to the races 60 days after publication. So as far as rumors, right, one of the rumors that we heard last week was that the rule wouldn't be published until 2024. Or one of the rumors that uh, we heard through the grapevine last week was that it'll be a uh, final proposed rule, which is not technically a thing. It is a, there are final rules, there are interim final rules, there are proposed rules. A final proposed rule is not a thing. It's this weird, obscure rulemaking jargon. It's very strange. Not a lot of people are familiar with it. And so as a result, when you get this sort of game of telephone going around, what what people hear is it's going to be effective in 2024. And so they'll say, oh, we're not going to get a rule until 2024 when it could be published this year as a proposed rule and then start the rollout in 2024. Okay. So it's just a lot of the confusion around rulemaking. Check out the video. It clarifies what these categories are. It clarifies where the information is coming from. I was amazed that last week I saw a couple blog posts that popped up uh, sort of saying that there was news about CMMC rulemaking and they were based off of stuff from December when the agenda came out. And so, you know, you just got to you got to really kind of double check where the sources are coming from, because there haven't been any updates since that agenda came out in December. Hopefully, Stacy's got something for us next week. Yeah. So I um on advisement of a friend and they say friends are the worst enablers uh <laughs> i signed up for email alerts and subscriptions for the federal register and lately oh congratulations <laughs> way to be an informed and engaged citizen fellow citizen <laughs> so i uh I, did you really i, I really did <laughs> and so over the <laughs> wow. past like two weeks it's been a cruel cr- game of punishment because like i have been washington's a- ghost is is nodding approvingly over your shoulder right now yeah he's he's, he's really excited for me he's like you're Civic taking engagement protect the warfighter like you got to do it and so there you go um, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely over the last two weeks man uh there's been quite a few defense uh bills that are you know like pieces of regulation like that qualify under the the DFAR stuff that I've got email alerts about and I, I got really really excited for a minute and then it just goes meow, meow, meow. like it's it's just yeah. something to do with like I don't know like expense Standard. reports well, that's, yeah, the, yeah, that's yeah, the like, crazy part that's the crazy part about the federal register is it it documents every everything yeah i mean every every piece of paperwork that gets filed as just standard routine yeah uh you know the the heartbeat of the regulatory system is documented in the federal register. So if you signed up for email alerts, you're definitely going to have to, uh, you're definitely have to prune back your false positives on that dashboard. That's for sure. I'm new. It's, it's a rookie mistake. I'll, <laughs> I'll adjust. All right. So, so yeah, so there was some questions about rulemaking. Check out the video. We even got a shout out uh, on the town hall from Matt Travis that recommended the video. So we're going to link to it. You should check it out. If you have questions, let us know. Um, but it's, it's pretty comprehensive. Uh, so it should answer most of those questions. Okay, another category questions in the town hall were 
uh, significant changes to a certified environment. Mm -hmm. So somebody asks, is there anybody outside of the OSC, the organization seeking certification, the companies who are seeking a CMMC certification? Is there anyone outside of the OSC that should receive a continuous monitoring report on a regular basis? How should the OSC treat significant changes to the level two boundary after they're certified? Does the OSC require a reassessment by a C3 PAO after a significant change to their environment? What if their reporting and reassessment requirement, uh, you know, is there is there any reporting or reassessment requirement if after a level two certified company uh, is acquired mm -hmm. before their recertification? So when there are these big changes to my environment, to my business structure, to this, to that, what happens? Do I need to get recertified? Do I need to notify somebody? What What am I supposed to do? So in a past life, I keep using that word. So I'll get over it. Uh, in a <laughs> in a past in a past life, uh, I actually ran a continuous monitoring program, um, and so I can say for sure that if there are significant changes that happen to your environment, you must get reevaluated. However, in, there's caveat. in that context though. What context were you working in? Uh, federal environment. Usually with FedRAMP stuff in, in play. Or, this is like a standard sort of like FedRAMP, RMF, yep. ATO environment. Yep. Any any significant change is going to trigger a new a new look at the environment to get recertified for sure. That's standard process in the federal world. But in the contractor world, this is going to be a little bit different. And so I don't know if this will um, – and, and obviously this is one of those things that uh, rulemaking is going to address, right? Like how are we going to – I sure hope so. But how – is this a case of where we're going to test your ability to track changes in your system as a part of CMMC, one of the requirements that you have in place? And are they leveled there? Have you evaluated them because you have to evaluate changes to the system to make sure that security is in place, system architecture is in play, and whatever, you know, secure system architecture has been deployed? Man, this I'll is tell you what, man, this this creates a lot of this creates a lot of problems if they don't explain what they're looking for. Because if it turns out that I mean it makes sense. If you if if the if you are getting certified to represent your CMMC certification represents to your customer that mm -hmm. there is assurance that when they provide you with data that needs to be protected, mm -hmm. it will be protected to a minimum reasonable standard. That's all it's doing, right? All it's doing is somebody else came in and looked at your environment and they told your customer by issuing this certification that it's good rather than the customer taking your word for it, which is obviously problematic, right? Sure. So that's all it's doing. If your environment were to change dramatically then then it should be reassessed i mean that's just that just makes sense the problem is is that in the federal space those assessments don't cost money right and so the system is sort of built for that to happen it's just sort of how it works but you know the, off the top of my head one of the problems that would happen here is if they don't require the reassessment then people will just wait to make changes until immediately after their assessment occurs and then they don't have to worry about it for three more years. Right. If they do require a reassessment after a significant change, then does that disincentivize people from making upgrades or better changes or or you know adjusting their architecture or anything like that? Because you would have to get you'd have to pay for at least the delta assessment over what's changed. I mean, so th there's a lot of unanswered questions here and it's very dicey because if you zig or if you zag, there's gonna be 
potential issues. And I have not heard the details of that answer. I really hope that they have anticipated that and that it's in rulemaking. Just to be clear, we're saying from experience in federal environments, if this were to happen, you would have to justify it, obviously, and get recertified or uh, reevaluated. Now, and and the reason why that's that's valid is all of this stuff is derived from the standards and the approaches like RMF from a federal Mm -hmm. side of the world. And so you would imagine that it would carry over intuitively as a normal person. You would say, okay, you told me that XYZ environment is good to go. Mm -hmm. And then that environment changed to ABC. So So, my perspective is that you are required to um, participate in an annual security assessment. You're required to evaluate the effectiveness of controls, at least on an annual basis, right? Sure. Um, And you're required to get recertified every three years with Mm -hmm. the the triennial self-assessment. So I think if you keep the track of the changes within the self-assessment, you're kind of reporting that to be evaluated. You're saying yeah. it meets that, but there's no and that's, validation yeah. point to it. And that's the whole caboodle that goes here. And that's that, probably right? what they're going to say, right, is you have to at least, you have to do your annual self-assessment and your annual attestation that you're good to go. And then we're going to show up every three years and they'll probably call that good. But, you know, this is a problem because what you would want is you'd want sort of some sort of continuous monitoring of an environment that's changing. But that takes time and money. So it's definitely something, it's a great question for sure, uh, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on in rulemaking for what they're going to say. They're probably going to go with what you said, but if they lean too far in either direction, then you're going to get a lot of behaviors that result um, that are unintended. Now, if we move on to the the next question in, in the series, the next topic of questions, right? It, it touches on inheritance versus reciprocity, which is a very common Conversation man, that's spicy, taking place right now. Spicy meatballs in the questions this month, man. There were a lot of questions. I was very surprised. And they were rapid fire. Really good questions. I agree. Um, so the question was, what exactly is the difference between inheritance versus reciprocity from the CMMC assessment perspective? And Okay. Uh, All right. Open your textbooks, everyone, to, to the section of 853 that talks about common controls. Okay, so here is the definition of inheritance straight from 853. A security control is inheritable by an information system or application when that system or application receives protection from the control or from portions of the control and the control is developed, implemented, assessed, authorized, and monitored by entities other than those responsible for that system or application, meaning you are operating your business information system, you're operating an application, right? And you are getting the protection of a control that is in a system that you do not own. You don't develop that control, you don't assess that control, you don't implement that control, you do not sign off on accepting the risk of that control in terms of it operating properly and producing the right outcomes and being configured correctly. You do not monitor that control. It is in a system you don't own, right? But you are receiving protection from whatever that security control is, right? For instance, there are lots of controls that are satisfied by your managed service provider, right? And you are inheriting that protection. You don't develop and implement their security controls. You don't assess their security controls. You don't accept the risk of their security controls. You don't own that system. You have an agreement with them 
right? And so now all of a sudden, your service level agreements, your contracts, your shared responsibility matrix, all that language becomes very, very important. So that is when you are inheriting a control in 853. In 853 parlance, these are known as common controls. They are common amongst groups or uh, systems of systems, right? Uh, now, what they mention there is sometimes you can inherit parts of a control. A partially inherited control is known as a hybrid control. And this is particularly where it's important when you're talking about managed service providers, third-party service providers. Caleb Lighty, the great and powerful Caleb Lighty from Summit 7, is going to be presenting on this at CS2 Huntsville next week, where if you look at 800-171A, this is why it's so important, you will see that there are parts of the control that your managed service provider is going to do for you it is mostly the technical functionality of a control. But the technical functionality of a control is designed to enforce your business's policy, your management decisions as documented in policy and procedure. So when you hire an MSP to configure and set up and maintain and monitor and secure your environment, you are paying them for technical functionality. You're, they don't set your company policy. It's your company, right? You set policy. So there is an inherent shared nature to all of the controls in 800 that you will only see if you look at 800-171A. So you can inherit part of it, the functionality piece, as a hybrid control. Maybe there's certain situations where you inherit the entire control. In the federal space, a lot of times the example, the cleanest example of a purely inherited common control is if you are operating a information system in a building on a military base, right? You don't, you don't work for facilities. You don't maintain the building. You don't maintain the gates and guns and guards and dogs and all these physical security protections. So you are inheriting those physical security protections from that control provider, the base, from facilities, from whatever, right? If you own your building as a private company out in the real world, then you don't inherit physical security controls from a military base. Those are your responsibility. So that's inheritance, right? Inheritance. In contrast, there's the concept of reciprocity, which is a definition that comes from nobody really knows, right? The, the idea that people are talking about is if I have a FedRAMP certification and I need to get a CMMC certification, will they be treated as reciprocal? Will I basically be given a CMMC certification because I have a FedRAMP certification or vice versa? Will there be reciprocity and recognition between these two standards? That is very different from inheritance, right? So what we know about reciprocity is it's supposed to be addressed in rulemaking is the ultimate answer. Conceptually, right? The FedRAMP moderate baseline, I don't know what the number is on top of my head. The FedRAMP moderate baseline is like 300 something controls. 325, right? Yeah, it's a bunch. It's a bunch. It is way, way bigger than the 800-171A baseline, both of which come from the overall 853 catalog. So if somebody is for real FedRAMP certified, then it makes total sense that they should be able to get their CMMC certification as a reciprocity thing, no problem. 
FedRAMP moderate completely subsumes everything in 800-171. However, a CMMC certification does not subsume a FedRAMP certification. So it's a one-way uh, uh, deal here, right? It is not purely reciprocal as a two-way street. Uh, so the difference here is, will FedRAMP certified organizations be given CMMC certification by default? How will control inheritance work in an assessment, right? Okay. So for instance, if you're using a managed service provider and they have a CMMC level two certification and uh, an assessor shows up and you're inheriting a bunch of parts of the security controls from your CMMC level two certified managed service provider, will they just say, oh yeah, you're good. Check, 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 check. Because they're certified. I've got assurances that they're good. I'm only going to ask you about the parts of the controls that you're responsible for. That's that's the inheritance piece. Yep, no, Still something rulemaking. No clarification on that yet as of rulemaking. And I did hit it on the head. It's 325 controls in the Met Federal. There you go. There you go. All right. So, yeah, inheritance versus reciprocity, very important concepts to understand, very important things to look for once the rule comes out. Inheritance is a very well-established concept in 853 and in the world of federal security and the RMF, going back all the way to 853 Rev 3, I think. Uh, so it's it's been there for years and years and years. If you want to know more about inheritance, look up common controls in 853. But let's talk about CUI, Jacob. Let's talk about CUI. There were so a lot there of questions about CUI on the town hall. There's always a lot of questions about CUI. It doesn't have to be on a town hall. Let's be honest here. It's one of the uh, hot Probably pressing the topics. question, right? Yeah. What is the meaning of life? What is CUI, right? We, we just, which one? That's right? why we're all here. I mean, that's why we're all here. The reason CMMC exists is because of CUI. The reason 171 exists is because of CUI. I mean, um, that's, that's why it's all around. So, So one of the questions from the town hall revolved around CUI. And so I'm going to pose it to you and see what you have to say about it. If a DIB contractor has never received notice from the DOD of what CUI it has, so it's not getting any notification about what kind of CUI it's interacting with, how would the JSV, which stands for Joint Surveillance Assessment, determine what CUI the contractor holds? Okay. Okay. Couple things. Probably the first thing, first thing that comes to mind. Joint surveillance assessments are not there to determine what CUI you hold. That's nope. not the purpose of the assessment. Purpose of the assessment is to verify that your controls for protecting CUI are in place. Mm -hmm. The wrong time to start asking about your CUI is when your assessors show up and the wrong person to ask about your CUI is your assessor, right? Uh, don't do that, right? The The whole idea is that they're showing up to verify an environment that is designed to protect CUI. So if you didn't know what CUI you had, I'm not sure why you are signed up for a joint surveillance assessment. If you're not confident that you have CUI in the first place, I'm not sure you need a joint surveillance assessment. A joint surveillance assessment is probably the is definitely the wrong time to start uh, wondering uh, mm -hmm. about whether you have CUI. It's sort of like pen testing is great, right? But if you're using a very expensive pen test to find open vulnerabilities that you could find with like a normal free vulnerability scanner, not a very efficient use of your money. 
you know, maybe you could have used the those resources for something else. Okay. So I've been in meetings before with John Ellis, right? Uh, the former director of uh, DCMA DibCAC, and he was very emphatic in some of these meetings when this uh, similar question came up where he was like, your DibCAC assessors are showing up because uh, someone has indicated inside the Pentagon that that's where the data is flowing. And so if it is a surprise to you that DibCAC is giving you a call, then, um, you know, something me- something got messed up way before that. Uh, it is not the DibCAC assessor's job to evaluate your CUI. There have been some discussions around this about the fact that your your assessors probably don't even need to see your CUI. And for most for the most part, they probably shouldn't. There's really no reason why they would need to be looking at schematics. And that's not what they're there for. They're not right. there to look at the CUI. They're there to look at your control environment. So, um, yeah, when it comes down to, you know, how would a, how would a joint surveillance assessment determine if you have CUI? That's not what the joint surveillance assessments do. And I mean, it's the same question. Uh, or sorry, it's the same answer that we always come back to. You've got to talk to your customer. You have to get, you know, into a a position where you feel comfortable talking to them. You need to talk to a lawyer in terms of how you're talking to them. There, whatever method you choose for engaging with your customer, that is really the only avenue for you to figure out, are you receiving CUI? Are you generating CUI? Did you get the right flow downs? Did you get flow downs that you didn't need at all because you don't have CUI? You don't generate CUI? Like all of that stuff is between you and the customer way before the assessment gets started, whether that is a joint surveillance assessment, whether that is a CMMC assessment, whether that is a DIBCAC assessment. Uh, you got to talk to the customer. Got to, got to, got to, got to. This week on LinkedIn, I um, had, or excuse me, last week on LinkedIn, I had a conversation about this that, that kind of relates to this, um, and it was a poll, and it was just you know discussing the most impactful control or the most impactful practice to implement. Oh yeah, this was a this was a good one, man. Uh, thanks. It was the most impact, impactful practice for you to implement early on in your CMC preparations, which will affect overall more controls than any other. All one hundred nine, to be honest. Yeah. And it's it's data flow, right? 100%. So if you are at the point that you are conducting or going to participate in a joint surveillance assessment, then you should have properly identified and diagrammed your data flow. And then that would determine what assets within your environment are CUI assets. There at no point in time is anything within 800171 CMMC or the assessment guides, the cap that says, you go in, you determine what CUI they have. That's no, not it. it all, yeah. That is your job as the OSC yep. to understand this and then to build that inventory and follow that inventory through your business processes to identify the flow of your data throughout the environment and scope your environment properly. Yeah, it, all of those, all of the assessments, 800 itself, whether DFAR 7012 flows to you to begin with to kick off this bouquet of mm-hmm. assessments and DFARS clauses presupposes your understanding of data flow. And really that is predicated on your relationship and communication with your customer. I mean, that is, I feel like we, I mean, that, that really is the answer. I, I, sometimes I feel bad that we give that answer so much, but that is the answer. Uh, and that sort of leads into the second question under this sort of broad CUI category. Cause even if that's the answer, it still has its own host of problems. Cause the question was, it wasn't really a question. It was more of a request. 
Can we get someone from the DOD on this meeting, the monthly Cyber AB Town Hall, to clearly and definitively outline the remediation efforts intended to increase the ability of contract officers to clearly and accurately communicate to contractors what CUI is provided and is expected to be generated? Um, I think that would be great. I think it would be great if you had somebody from the DOD on to explain clearly and definitively the remediation efforts intended to increase the ability of contract officers. For those of you listening, next week at the time of this recording at CS2, we're going to be talking with a former contract officer about their perspective on this exact situation. Stacey Boschjanik will be there. And I remember last year, 2021, you know, they know that this is an issue. They know that training is a problem. And that, you know, people need to, uh, the contract workforce needs to have better understanding of what's going on. I don't know. I mean, they should, I would, I think it'd be great if they had Stacy on the town hall. What I will say though, is that, uh, in some industry meetings that I've been in, right. What I think people don't know is that there are different offices within the undersecretary of defense that are in charge of different things. And, Stacy and Buddy D's and the CMMC group and the Dib CS group all work under the DOD CIO. And then you've got OSD Acquisition Sustainment, which is OSD ANS. And then you've got INS, RE. You've got all these other offices. And CUI really belongs to OSD INS. So I can't remember the person's name who runs that office. But I would love to have the INS people on the AB town hall to talk about the perspective of the CUI program from the Pentagon level down, and then somebody from ANS to talk about the training for the contractor contract officers from an acquisition statement um, uh, perspective. Because if you get somebody uh, like our buddy um, in our buddy D's in the uh, uh, DOD CIO's office. Uh, he is not necessarily in charge of what INS is in charge of. He doesn't work for ANS. So he's going to have a perspective from the CMMC program office, but it won't necessarily give you the answer I think this person was looking for on the town hall. So it's the bureaucracy, right? I mean, this is what everybody's always talking about. Like you have different offices in charge of different things. So who you want to be on the town hall definitely needs to be from that relevant office. But, uh, you know, we'll talk to Lauren Ayers, a former contract officer next week. We'll talk to Stacey Boschanek, see what's going on. But I hope they get somebody on the town hall. Contract officer training on CUI definitely is a uh, important thing to have because, you know, we've heard lots of stories of undermarking and overmarking. I mean, it kind of runs it runs the spectrum out there. Right. I agree. Um, the one thing that's clear about this is that uh, this is definitely not a CMMC or a Cyrabi problem, right? This is not yeah, a... That's uh, a great... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great a, point, man. I mean, just like we talked about earlier, it's like they should have somebody on the town hall. That would be great. But ultimately, the Cyber AB is in charge of uh, the sort of CMMC ecosystem, right? And, this, and, and the people in the DOD CMMC office are responsible for creating the program to validate that you're protecting CUI, not to creating the program to validate that you're labeling it correctly or whatever it is. Right. They're now just they're saying very, that you're getting yeah. it. You have a responsibility to protect it. How are you doing yeah. that? And we're going to validate it. They're closely related, but, you know, at the end of the day, ultimately, not something that the AB is in charge of. But I do hope they get somebody on the town hall that can help us out with that. All right. So the sort of last question that came under this sort of broad CUI category is very interesting. How are members of the DIB 
supposed to accurately perform a self-assessment if they've never been informed what they receive as CUI or what CUI they are generating. I can't define the external boundary of CUI because I don't have CUI. So, okay, so if you don't have CUI, then the assumption is that you have FCI. And when you are doing a self-assessment for level one for FCI, your boundary is created by where FCI flows within your environment. And you are assessed on the implementation, or you're you self-assessed on the implementation of security practices from CMMC level one against whatever assets lie within that boundary. The only difference is, is that in level two, obviously there are the multiple categories of assets. And realistically in level one, you're classifying them as FCI assets and out of scope assets. Yeah. Well, and this is well, absolutely right. And this is a, an interesting paradox because let's assume that we, you know, snapped our fingers with Thanos's gauntlet on and we're going to restart the flow of CUI only once companies mm -hmm. have fully implemented their controls in 800-171. So you cannot, the paradox is you cannot receive CUI until you have implemented your controls inside that boundary to mm -hmm. protect the CUI. But how do you scope your boundary if you don't know what the data is? It's actually easier because you're creating your own scope. Well, right? and that, that's you, you can then design assumption. your you can then yeah, design your business processes for your data to flow directly into the scoped boundary, right? That you've created instead of being in the situation of one of these organizations that has let it go into waste for a while, maybe five or six years, and now you're searching like, where is my CUI? And that's that's the big assumption that underlies 800-171 and scoping and how it is tailored from 853 down to 171 is companies already have a security program. They already have a good idea of their own data flows. They are interested in protecting those data flows. So they have implemented security controls to protect them. We, the government, are giving you our data that we have an interest in protecting. So please make sure that your program and control environment meet these 110 goals, and then we're good to go, right? In reality, that's not how it worked. That's not how it works to this day. Most companies did not really think about that. Most companies uh, were not necessarily interested for various perfectly legitimate reasons to approach their system and environment in that way. And mm -hmm. so now we get trapped in this paradox where we would not otherwise scope or implement security controls at all. And in order to continue doing business with the government, we need to have this like mystery data flow identified for us. And that's a very difficult position to be in. So to your point, you don't need the CUI in order to scope the environment for CUI, because all you have to do is imagine what the data flows are through your business processes to know where that boundary is suddenly going to pop up at, right? So I mean, the assessor is not going to tell you this. The customer may or may not at this point in time be able to tell you this or give you an answer that you necessarily want, you have to go through and trace your data flow based off of what the CUI would be through your business processes. And most companies find out pretty quickly that those data flows go into all kinds of places that they didn't anticipate. They go into their ERP, they go into sales, they go into engineering maybe, depending on the nature of your business. They go into 
BizDev. I mean, the, the data is flowing all over the place. It's going into the cloud. It's going into webmail. I mean, it's going it's going everywhere. Our MSP has access. Now, all of a sudden, you, you know, you're you're in the middle of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for the companies that get their CUI identified, whether it's being sent to them or generated to them, and they can use that explicitly in their scoping, that's great. But it is it's not a it's not a requisite for you to have to do that, right? Like you don't necessarily need the CUI in order to do that. You seem to have a good understanding of where your business processes and data flows are going. I think a lot of people are understandably, they want that CUI explicitly identified. Uh, whether they're generating it or receiving it, because they they want the, they want those data flows to be as small as possible, right? But it's just this it's this weird cart and horse thing where um, you know you're going to have to probably do some scoping before you know exactly what data that you're getting, right? So it's very important to work with the right consultants, people who know what's going on, people who are familiar with doing data flow. Um, you know, definitely something to 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 keep track of because, like we talked about during the assessment not the purpose of your assessor to come in and check to make sure that the, the CUI was right. They're going to come in and check to make sure that your your boundary decisions were correct and that your corresponding controls were implemented properly. I, I have a quick issue with um, the perspective of, I don't know exactly where to apply my security controls because I don't know where my CUI flows. And here's the reason. So CMMC is assessing how you implemented the practices of NIST 800-171 inside of that scope, right? But that doesn't mean that the things that are outside of that scope don't need the same provisions and practices. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that people are going to go too literal with um, understanding exactly what needs to be done and reading every letter by letter and not really backing up and seeing the broader picture. And we're going to have environments where it's going to be a hard environment that's going to be inside the CUI scope. And then everything outside of it's going to be the wild west. We're just going to be gunslinging and hoping that lateral movement doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, I you know that happens quite a bit. But yeah. it, it if you put yourself in the shoes of the government as the data owner, that is really not the kind of environment that they were anticipating this standard was going to be plopped in the middle of. Mm-hmm. They were really not anticipating that eight hundred one seventy one was going to be used as a north star for engineering a program from scratch. And so if you are uh, dropping 800-171 with all of its various assumptions into a sort of Wild West uncontrolled situation, then yeah, a lot of it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So you got to kind of take a step back and and look at the bigger context. Now, something that may help, we actually talked about this last month when we talked about distribution statements and CUI being posted on video game forums. Yeah. Uh, and uh, using DoD distribution statements in order to w- figure out if that is what makes something CUI. The DoD instruction 523024 was updated at the end of January. And it is a much, much better version of the instruction that I think hadn't been updated since like 2018 or something like that. Astute listeners might notice that 2018 is way before uh, the CMMC program was ever a thing. And uh, if you keep looking back at previous revisions of 522324, uh, it goes back years and years and decades because the uh, application of distribution statements to indicate technical information that needs to be protected has been the thing that DOD has been doing since like the 1980s. 
The reason why there is a category of CUI known as controlled technical information as indicated by distribution statements in this DOD instruction is because there was a DOD instruction before the CUI program became a thing, right? The CUI program just gave a name and a single location for all of these agency authorities to be in one spot for the first time. And so if you scroll through 523024, there's this chart where they have these categories of information and then the distribution statements that apply to those categories of information. The first one is publicly releasable information, which is by definition, not CUI. It is publicly releasable, right? You've probably seen these on DOD slides, DOD memos, DOD instructions. They're marked distribution statement A, approved for public release. That gets distro, distro statement A. Distro statements B through E, F, G, you know, X, Y, Z are all not approved for public release within the various details of those different distribution statements. Those other forms of information, according to this instruction in this table, controlled technical information, contractor performance evaluation information, critical technology information, export controlled information, foreign government information, uh, operational security information, patents and inventions, very interesting cyber information, right? Which is always a big question. Uh, is CUI and CTI and 800-171 and CMMC going to be relevant in cyber work? You know, sort of other transaction type of acquisitions. According to DODI 5230-24, there are some situations where cyber information will be considered not publicly releasable and therefore needs to be protected with 800-171. Vulnerability information, test and evaluation information, which is what we talked about last month around the test and evaluation results for Army combat goggles, test and evaluations for presidential helicopter program, things like that. So according to this this document, it really goes into the details of different kinds of information that could have a distribution statement on it that are therefore considered to be DOD forms of CUI, that therefore trigger DFAR 7012 to be flowed to you, that therefore trigger you to implement 800-171, that eventually causes you to have to get a CMMC assessment. So definitely go read the updated version of 523024 if you have questions about CUI in a DOD-specific context. Anyways, another set of questions from the town hall. Joint surveillance was a common category of questions that popped up. And people were asking, will companies be charged and or need to fund participation in joint surveillance assessments? It's a good question. That is a very good question. Um, let's see. You would think because DIPCAC's conducting them and DIPCAC assessments are usually free, that they would be free. Right. If the government shows up to assess you via DIPCAC, you don't pay money for that. You pay in your time, right? Maybe your stress level, but... Uh, you don't get charged money for that. This is a joint surveillance assessment that is being conducted jointly with DIBCAC assessors and with C3PAOs coming to assess you. I would think that you would have to pay the C3PA. They're not going to do it for free. It is not free. Okay. Joint surveillance assessments are not free. Um, and this is uh, <clears throat> very interesting. So, so we've heard that these joint surveillance, I mean, this, you'll hear this every time. Anytime anybody from DOD is talking about what's going on with rulemaking, 
They'll say that in the meantime, you should sign up for a joint surveillance assessment because their hope is that if you get a joint surveillance assessment, that when the rule is done, you will be grandfathered into the certification timeline and you won't have to get your clock for recertification won't start until then. So you get this bonus time. Uh, a lot of companies that are signed up for it now view it as a competitive advantage. Um, and we've heard that they're scheduled out like through late spring as far as full capacity. So there are definitely people who are signed up for them. I don't know if they've said on the town hall, maybe they will next month, how many have happened, but I know, uh, it's a non-zero number, my favorite phrase. There have been multiple companies that have gone through joint surveillance assessments. As uh, of last month's town hall, I think it was at seven. Seven, yeah, which is, you know, think about where – I always do this. I'm like, think about where we were in, in March of last year, right? Uh, you know, how many C3PAOs there were. There were no joint surveillance assessments. There was none of that. So, um, you know. It's, it's not nothing, but there are people who are in the queue and they are happening. They are not free. We have heard various quotes out there for how much assessments might cost. If you go back to the summer of last year and or um, testimony in front of the House Armed Services Committee, which we'll get to in a later segment, you would have heard that assessments are going to cost six figures. The cost of the assessment is six figures. We've heard assessments cost $50,000. So the various assessments sort of run the gamut. I have not heard of a joint surveillance assessment costing anywhere close to six figures, but I don't know if they've actually put out what the going rate for a joint surveillance assessment is, but they are not free. You do have to pay for those. Yeah, I still have not seen anything authoritative that says that this is the exact rate that's going to be charged or any documentation showing the JSVs and, you know, uh, some of the costs that were associated with it. All we yeah. have is estimations, which the estimations, um, you know, just hammering your point even more, uh, the estimations that we're seeing in these testimonies and in these statements provided for the different meetings and, and hearings is wildly larger than what we are hearing actual yeah. people that we know that are C-3PAOs saying this is what it would cost or, or whatever yeah, it may like be. Th they're costing like a third. Right. Yep. Which is which is, you know, there's supply and demand dynamics at play here. Right. A lot of people have heard rulemaking is taking longer than anticipated. People think it's not happening, so they're not going to sign up for joint surveillance. There's not as much demand for the assessment. So the price comes down. Mm -hmm. So you're actually incentivized to sign up for joint surveillance when everybody thinks that it's not happening because the assessments are cheaper whenever uh, people think that it's not happening. So a little bit sure. of irony there as far as the supply and uh, demand dynamics go. But yeah, joint surveillance assessments are not free. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like that this program, you know, obviously is fully designed to offset um, a, some of the real time experience that may not have been had um, once rulemaking finalizes and C3PAs were just released in and do assessments. I like this ease in of the process to make sure things are operating on all cylinders. Um, and it, I, I don't see where realistically it could be free at, at all, right? Because these C-3PAOs have to get money for their time. Like they don't operate on sure. potato chips and M&Ms. Like it, it's yeah. got to be, you know, something that is nominal that is going to motivate I'm them. I'm sure there is a significant amount of potato chips and M&Ms uh, that are consumed in an assessment, uh, having is some um, personal experience with assessments in the past. But yeah, that is not the currency of assessments, although uh, 
still very common in an assessment. Is it so, kind of like yeah. the green room Skittles bowl, like for concert performers, you know, like uh superstars come <laughs> that, in, they're like only want green M&Ms. Like, yeah. And if they find like a brown M&M, then they like cancel the show. The and, Jacob yeah. Horn list is like, I want a hardbound copy of what, 853. Man, if, and if, they, <laughs> if the last page of 853 is still in the binder on the coffee room, uh, the coffee table, then I know. I know that they didn't they didn't pay attention. So, <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't discriminate. Any color of M&M is fine with me. So, OK, so another set of questions that came up in the town hall were about clarifications on control implementations from the DOD. So somebody asked, contacting DOD for technical clarifications has not worked for me to date. Are there other methods than the various DOD portals that anyone knows about? So for. Those people who do not know, if you look in DFAR 7012, the contract clause in your contracts, or if you just Google it and click on the link, DFAR 7012 is not very long. It's only like 13 paragraphs long. And here we here we go. And I push up my glasses. DFAR 7012 paragraph B2 subparagraph 2 section A. There is an email address there that says, Contact osd.dibcsia at mail.mil. That is how you get in contact with DOD CIO. I think sometimes what happens is when people say, well, what do I do if I want to vary from a control? Or what do I do if I want to have an alternative control implemented instead of the one prescribed in the standard? And people go, in order to do that, you've got to get an approval from DOD CIO. You don't need to like go find John Sherman and say, hey, John, can I get an exception? You email that email address, and that is contacting DOD CIO. We've met the folks who man that mailbox, and uh, they're very nice people. So uh, email that inbox. That is where you get your answer from DOD CIO. Specifically, this is very advantageous because if you have a variance or you have an exception or you have a waiver or you have anything – and you have it from that email address from DOD CIO, and you document that in your SSP, then when gold. you get an assessor who shows up, you go, this control is not implemented, or we have varied, or whatever the situation is, and here is my letter from the DOD CIO that allows me to do that. A lot of times you'll hear people go, oh, that's NA, and we'll talk about it in the assessment, or it's not applicable, and don't worry about it. If you want assurance that your plan will make it through an assessment and it is something different from what's in the standard, email that email address and get the official answer from the CIO and you're good to go. I mean, that is, that's the word from on high as far as the assessors go, because that's, it's coming from the boss. If, uh, if they're the ones that give you uh, an answer to your question. So that is the best way to get a hold of them. Definitely email that inbox with all of your questions. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've, this has been a well-known outlet and obviously people still have questions to, they have, they need answers to and, and don't know of this outlet. How I'll, I'll often? Tell you, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you a little inside tip. Uh, a lot of times the people, uh, people at DOD may or may not use this as a trick question to kind of get you and figure out if you have read your contract clause. If you don't know what the email address is to contact the DOD CIO, they say, read this paragraph in DFAR 7012 and the email address is listed there like in black and white. It's just kind of a little thing that they, 
they don't do it to like say, oh, we know we did, you didn't read your contract clause. We got you. But it's just one of those things. Email that email address. It's it's literally in DFAR 7012, right square in the middle of it. That's how you get a hold of them. Now, the way this question is worded, it may actually be that this is one of the portals that this person had tried could previously. Be. Yeah, so, it yeah. could be, and they're not getting an answer. Uh, at that point, I would say continue to make us think about it. If this person who asked this question is listening, put it in the comments of this YouTube video, of this clip, if that's how you're finding it. And we will try to help you out. But that is the best way to get a hold of them. I hope that's the one that they didn't know about and that they can go find it. I'm not sure what the other portals were that they were using, but that's technically the best way to get a hold of them. So. For sure. So, all right. We're looking at each other. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, so one of the next questions, and, and actually the final question that we have um, from from the, the Cyber AB Town Hall uh, for this month um, has to do with something we both talk about it. And, and, you know, like it's the way that you deliver a message and the way that information is put out, depending on how ingestible it is, depends on how effectively people will, you know, take heed to it and will, will be able to absorb it and, and act on it. And so this question was, are there plans between the DOD and Cyber AB to develop materials that are written in plain English to help individuals who are IT directors by default, dot, 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 IT directors by default, but not InfoSec professionals. Um, are there plans between the D I'm going to do the old, uh, the old, uh, uh, the old pageant trick of restating the question to buy yeah. time here. Are there plans between the DOD and the AB to develop materials written in plain English? I have not heard of those plans, so I don't know. I'm going to assume that the answer is no. Uh, and I think that uh, one of the reasons is that where you find that kind of guidance is in the discussion sections of each of the controls. You'd find that in the discussion section under the, the requirements listed in 800-171. You find that in the discussion section, the supplemental information section under the controls in the CMMC assessment guide. That is where they put their examples. That is where they put their explanations. That's where they put their takes on what this control means. And for anybody who has read through them, your mileage may vary in terms of how effective those examples are. I do not know of an effort to rewrite the language of the requirements in plain English. Um, you know, Funnily enough, from NIST's perspective, the wording of the language in 800-171, and therefore by extension in CMMC, is about as plain and clear as they can make it, right? Uh, they, they have it down to like, it's almost like reading pseudocode. And from an engineering perspective, you're like, we can't make it any less flowery. We can't make it any less concise. Uh, there's a lot of jargon in there, and it doesn't really tell you a lot, but it is very clear what it says. And so I do not know of an effort of them uh, trying to do that. However, not so long ago, you spearheaded a project at Summit 7 uh, in collaboration with Microsoft to attempt to do something like this for CMMC Level 1, right? Correct. Yeah. So it, it, it's clear. First of all, there's a whole industry of people who have um, essentially – uh, been you know going to college to learn how to translate this stuff into plain English and, and make it work right and sure. um, 
it's definitely Shout not out what, to uh, University of Maryland University College, circa 2015. Yeah, a lot of a lot of my bachelor's degree was about NIST controls, ironically enough. So yeah, I mean that I I had one class where we were given 853 and we were like, learn this. You had to like cite it in papers and write <laughs> research papers I and love it. things like that. Yeah, I now I absolutely love it. Right. But no, no yeah, I, I think that you're right that the supplemental discussion is as much. For each control, as much as you can break that down and try to understand it, um, it's kind of like when you learn a new language, right? When you learn Spanish or something like that, you take the keywords that you know within that language and you try to piecemeal that together to try to say what, you know, try to figure out what's being said to you because you're not fluent in the language. Yeah. And so I think that the, the, the closest thing to have towards that, the closest Rosetta Stone, so to say, is the discussions. Now, when the discussions yeah. aren't enough, that's when people who have been educated to translate this and to apply it um, come into play. That's when you get the, and the RPOs, CCPs, and, and you know other you know not just CMMC specific, but people that are in consultant roles which have that knowledge, that competency, and the yeah. skill to to translate it for you and make it adjustable yeah. for the organization. And this and is what, when it, you know, that's why we tell people all the time it's important to pick the right service provider as a partner because most companies are going to have to pick a service provider and you not only have to be able to translate the requirements, but you also have to be able to know how that maps into the technology that facilitates those requirements. And so there's a lot of great consultants out there who can break this stuff down and explain it to you, but they may, they may not know the implementation side of the technologies, you know, for instance, in the Microsoft stack. And so you got to be able to sort of straddle both of those worlds. And that's really what you want to look for. And that's exactly what we did when we developed the the, the level one implementation guide, the, the Microsoft uh, yeah. level one implementation guide. Is we knew that, especially for level one, people are going to be venturing out into this solo as solo as it's going to get and throughout the entire process, and a lot of them aren't going to know exactly what needs to happen. So it needs to be broken down to the point where it's step by step instructions that say you do this. It's not because. They're not smart people, right? It's not because no, no, we're not yeah. calling anybody stupid. No. What we're saying is, this, is that it is, is a yeah. specialized language and it yeah. is a specialized evaluation of what's being said on the paper right. that translates into a million things. You ever, put together, you ever put together Ikea furniture? Yeah, 100%. Right? The instruction we, manual drives, for some people, it drives them nuts. But if you put together enough Ikea furniture, it all starts to kind of you start to sort of learn the language of this weird visual set of instructions over time. It's the same thing with goofy, you know, uh, NIST ease, right? Like it's a weird way of having read a lot of NIST documents. They're written in a very strange sort of passive voice. It's, it's written by engineers, right? It's not very approachable, even if it's very clear, right? Sort of like whoever designed airplane seats, Right. They're not comfortable. And whoever that person was was like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. This feels great. Like, I think it's awesome. You're like, OK, like, I guess that worked for you. <laughs> but for the rest of us, it didn't really make a lot of sense. So, yeah, we'll make a link to the level one guide that we did with Microsoft uh, down below so people can check that out. And uh, that'll get them off for a good start on level one. All right, man, this is um, this is the podcast for February, but we're going to make an exception for a monumental document that came out. Uh, right in the very early beginning uh, part of March, the 2023 National Cybersecurity Strategy. Finally, at long last, uh, we had originally, longtime listeners will know, we had originally talked about this in episode two under the umbrella of the overall National Cybersecurity Strategy 
the up the most recent version which should come out literally any day now should come out in november in november of last year where we were waiting on the national cyber strategy it was supposed to be imminent released imminently and so this is just another example of the speed of governments right because it imminently actually meant several months later so you know clearly we're waiting on the imminent submission of the cmmc rule to omb for a review and it's taking several extra months so kind of par for the course around here but but the document is out it is 39 pages and it is quite comprehensive so it is worth reading everyone listening to this podcast should definitely read the national cyber strategy this is only the third national cyber strategy that we have had in 20 years in the united states so even though it's um kind of a policy document it's kind of washington dc-esque language and stuff still worth your time to go through and read it my sort of initial reaction to it is it is a pretty good consolidation of a lot of the stuff that you've probably heard about going on in the broader world of cybersecurity regulation they talk about the Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative and the False Claims Act. They talk about public-private partnerships. They talk about hack-back authorities to go after cybercrime syndicates. They talk about regulations. They talk about requirements. They talk about assessments. They talk about funding. They talk about research and development. I mean, there's it basically the, the whole gang is here together in this cyber strategy. So if you want a good overview of which way the winds are blowing along those various uh, elements, then definitely go through the document. So I had my a couple of thoughts to line up, but you said that part of the things uh, that jumped out to you were the software security aspects. Sure. Yeah. Like, I think that that uh, above a lot of things, that, that is what stood out the most. Before I get into that, I just want to say since November... You've kind of been like Happy Gilmore, and I know you're getting into golf too, so this might play in, in multiple ways, right? Where you know, on Happy Gilmore, like he goes into the batting cage and he's prepping, he's like 364 <laughs> days until the hockey tryouts. Like, I feel like every morning you wake up and you pop out of bed and you look and you're like, no national strategy, and you just go and like, I don't know what you do, like, I don't, just read through regulations really quickly, whatever Jacob Horn does oh, for yeah. fun, and you're like, Nine days till the strategy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I got through those. I got through those 39 pages of the cyber strategy very quickly this morning because I have inoculated myself to uh, the weird cryptic language of security regulations and NIST standards and things like that. Uh, You know, in the the NIST regulation gymnasium, I guess, every day. But, yeah, I've worn out the top of my F5 key trying to figure out. Uh, trying to catch when the cyber strategy comes out, when the rule gets submitted for review, you know, basically any of these updates, uh, that F5 key is definitely taking the, uh, in the batting cage. It, yeah, it's mostly the F5 key taking the hits here instead of, instead of me, but yeah, good reference by the way. Also getting into golf, your fault, by the way. So thanks Listen, for that. That's a longer story. Enablers, for, you gave me for, federal regulation emails. I gave you golf. I don't know who yeah. won that battle. Okay. Maybe for an AMA episode in the future, we'll, we'll figure out. Our hobbies and stuff like that. Anyways, let's talk national, software security. The natty strategy. The natty the strategy. Natty right? strategy. <laughs> As you'd like to. I, uh, okay, so it, the 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 compensation that I want for having spent many months raising awareness broadly in my small corner of the world and what small platform I may have in bringing awareness of the importance 
of the cyber strategy and having them made us wait for so long is I demand that we refer to it as the natty strategy. Uh, I think that's fair. I think it is something the kids will love it. Uh, you know, tell your friends on TikTok about the natty strategy. So I think that that's we should normalize calling it the natty strategy. I think that's the least that you deserve. You know, or, you know, that's the least they can give. It's you not for, for me. This yeah. is for all of us. It's going it to catch. It's it's catchy. It'll catch on for sure. So, so fetch. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, the natty strategy. Uh, the natty strategy. Sorry, let me get it right. Please, no disrespect please. intended. I apologize. But look, it promotes. The, the, the one thing that I really do like about it is that it does promote a lot of public and private collaboration and partnership, which I think is necessary in order to accomplish the hefty things that have been established in the five pillars that make up the entire strategy, right? Sure. And, and that's defending critical infrastructure, disrupting and dismantling threat actors, shaping market force to drive security and resiliency, investing in a resilient future, and forging international par- partnerships to pursue s- s- goals. So. All great goals. In the 39 pages, one thing that really stuck out to me was there. And before we, before we get into that, you saw a lot of things happening leading up to the release of the strategy that now that we look back on it, hindsight's always 2020. Now that we look back on it, it was like little tips. It was Easter eggs hidden within these subcommittee hearings and these, these, you know, executive um, orders and, National security Jen, Jen memoranda, Easterly, Jen Easterly op-eds and things like that. Oh, yeah. So um, all of it's stored in there like little Easter eggs in a video game. But the software liability thing is something that really stood out to me, right? And basically what it's saying is the government wants software companies that produce software for the government to use. Um, the government wants those companies to be held liable if those introduce threats or there are vulnerabilities that they fail to remediate that ultimately lead to negative impact incidents sure. on government infrastructure. Totally agree with it. However, this is one of those things like we talk about DOD cybersecurity programs. Did somebody really think out how much of a lift this is going to be and all of the caveats and different things that are going to have to be addressed as a result of it. First and foremost, you're a company, you get FCA'd, right? And it says that, you know, it's pulled out and something's wrong with your cybersecurity program and it's not implemented to expectations. You are part of a breach. Um, Cyber insurance refuses to cover anything in the breach because of negligence on your part. Well, if the software is responsible for it, now you can point fingers, right? But software companies can tell you, I handed you this. This is the, you know, this is our FedRAMP certificate. This is whatever it is. You did something to do this. And it's just going to be this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and no resolution, right? The other thing is, is who's going to oversee this and police this when all that starts happening? Those were my two biggest takeaways from that. Who it's is going it, to do that? I will say that there are a lot of ideas in the strategy. I'd say a lot of those are good ideas. Mm-hmm. And some of those are good ideas, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And um, I don't know if the strategy necessarily dives into the intricacies of how some of these good ideas and good ideas will actually play out. Liability for vulnerable software is going to be a pretty big battle. I mean, you can. I'm not a lawyer, but I don't think anybody really needs to think all that hard in order to figure out what kind of fights there might be legally in order to sort of see that kind of liability come to fruition, right? Perspective is definitely a principle that needs to be taken into consideration here. 
from the the hundred thousand foot view perspective, right? Great idea, absolutely great. Sure. Ultimately, what you think is going to happen is the software companies are going to assume more responsibility and make more of a valiant effort to produce secure things, remediate vulnerabilities, staying on top of this stuff, right? Kind of um, process of elimination or addition by subtraction, right? Subtracting the responsibility and adding the um, assume, uh, the, the risk remediation that, that comes as a part of using the software, right? But what ultimately happens is, is that the further that you go down and you get to the 10,000 foot view, you're like, oh, that's kind of sketch. And then you get to the ground level view and you look at it. And I don't think anybody went to the ground level and looked at exactly what's going to go into this. Now, yeah. I will oh, I will cover um, this entire perspective with the, the umbrella perspective that um, quite possibly it was thought about. And a lot of times within the CSIS briefing today when, about the national, the Natty mm-hmm. Strati and in reading the Natty Strati, it is mentioned a lot of times that this is a long-term process, right? So we're looking sure. at, at the long-term goals. Now, is it accomplishable at the long-term and in the long-term? Yeah. As a short-term goal, absolutely no, no way and, that this is plausible. And- and to be fair, right? I mean, if they had to spell out every detail of how to make all of these ideas work, then it would never get published, right? So, I mean, they kind of yep. got to call it after a certain point and kind of snap a baseline of what's going to happen. It is an imperfect process. So there are definitely limitations to what a single document can do. It is worthwhile, I think, for for consolidating everything in one spot. And, I mean, the National Cyber Strategy does have to go through significant reviews among different organizations and different elements of the government. That's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why it takes so long. I mean, they worked on this thing for two years. So there is some merit to the idea that the language around establishing liability for software companies being in an official administration document is in itself a pretty big step. I mean, because we've only had three of these things and the two of them before that didn't come anywhere close to talking about even bringing up that idea as a possibility. So, you know, the further you zoom out, the further you zoom back, right. There's definitely some context uh, to, to keep in mind, but I don't think there are any like uh, softballs in terms of the ideas that are expressed in the strategy. And so that's another reason why it's, you know, it's an important document to understand. But, you know, as we were talking about the software security thing, uh, we'll do a little bonus session, off script bonus session, not in the notes here, folks. Not- right right before we started recording this, I, I put up a poll on LinkedIn. So I have a, I have a pop quiz for you, Jason. Okay. Um, okay. So there have been three national cyber strategies. There was one issued in 2003. There was one issued in 2018. There was one issued today in 2023 and sort of the big, the big uh, thing that's getting a lot of attention in the 2023 cybersecurity strategy is its approach to software security, software security and liability, Mm -hmm. everything related around software, primarily stemming from the Biden executive order 14028, Mm -hmm. I think was the one that sort of did the software uh, supply chain security initiatives. Okay, so I'm going to read you a quote from one of the cybersecurity strategies, and you need to tell me what year it was written. Ready? 
All right, the software industry is encouraged to consider promoting more secure out-of-the-box installation and implementation of their products, including increasing, one, user awareness of the security features in their products, two, ease of use for security functions, and three, promotion of industry guidelines and best practices to support such efforts. Was that written today, 2018, or 2003? 2018. Nope. 2003? It was written 20 years ago that software vendors needed to do a better job of putting in security by default. And so when you read through the National Cyber Strategy, and it talks a lot about asking software vendors to do their part and pull their weight and implement security by default and security by design and resilience by design, just remember... We've been asking for them to do that for 20 years. And so maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe we've all learned our lesson over the last two decades. Maybe not. So uh, kind of something to keep in mind as you read through the good ideas and the good ideas in the document. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. I thought it was kind of interesting. Right? Yeah, that was, that was one thing that jumped out to ago. me where I was like, man, I... Uh, I've read a lot of this before in previous strategies, and so, you, but you never know, right? It's a new, it's a new strategy. There's a lot more government-wide attention on the problem. There's a lot better understanding of the threat. We've lost a lot of information, and we've had a lot of issues in the last twenty years. So, you know, maybe it will actually be different this time. But just you know, it's something that everybody should keep in mind. Just imagine the evolution of software used for business processes in, 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 that, in that 20 years. years. Yeah, like it's probably went the from, evolution of the Internet itself. 20 years ago, people were just getting like Microsoft, whatever it was called, out of the box and installing it on a CD-ROM, right? Like, yeah, and, well, and I mean, 20 years ago, box, right? 20 years now, ago, if you would have told somebody you were a YouTuber and a professional podcaster, they would have called the cops. They're like, what are you talking about? What is this guy saying? This, this guy is very sense. weird. They commit those people. <laughs> Yeah, Anyways. but now you, you have it where, uh, on average, 34 applications, software applications. You have SaaS applications being used constantly within the environment. 34. Software ate the world. Software and, ate the world. A lot yeah. of stuff has changed in 20 years. So. And it introduces a lot of risk into the environment. And if it's not properly managed, obviously, it can be a big he headache. So I, I fully understand the perspective. Um, and, and I think that this software responsibility and liability stuff goes to the overarching theme of the national cyber strategy, which was promoting the public and private collaboration and partnership. Right. But I think that that's because they want to have the government needs to make something happen, but they can't own all of it. They can't absorb it. So they're trying to make self-regulatory entities within the strategy yeah. itself. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely something to look for as a theme throughout the document is where the government admits the limitations of their role as the government and where this collaboration needs to step in. So 100%. let's talk about, what the national cybersecurity strategy means for the DIB specifically, because there are basically no mentions in the cybersecurity strategy of the DIB itself, of CMMC specifically. But if you give it a close read and you sort of know what you're looking at, there are things that you can take away as somebody in the defense ecosystem, defense space uh, downstream from the cyber strategy. So the first thing to know is there is a renewed emphasis on something called sector risk management agencies. So CISA is the 
uh, agency that's in charge, essentially, of all of the critical infrastructure sectors. There are 16 of them, I believe. Mm -hmm. This is uh, water sector, pipelines, rail and air, energy, and the defense industrial base is one of the critical infrastructure sectors. Uh, a, a federal agency is generally in charge of one or more of those critical infrastructure sectors to coordinate the security and resilience of that sector. Those agencies are known as sector risk management agencies. So if you remember earlier last year, the TSA was issuing security regulations for pipelines right? Because they are the sector risk management agency for whatever reason over that critical infrastructure sector, right? So you might have um, uh, the EPA issue regulations and security requirements over their critical infrastructure sector, Department of Energy over the energy infrastructure sector, so on and so forth, and the DOD over the defense industrial base as a critical infrastructure sector. The DOD is the sector risk management agency for the DIB, which is a critical infrastructure sector. So don't expect that CISA is going to suddenly roll in and take over the CMMC program or the security of the DIB. They are reemphasizing this network of sector risk management agencies and the regulations over their corresponding infrastructure sectors. So it is mm -hmm. reinforcing the idea that the DOD is the one that calls the shots over the DIB as the critical infrastructure sector that they coordinate with. The other side of SRMAs, sector risk management agencies, are something known as sector coordinating councils. And these are companies or industry groups or both that form these coordinating councils that interface with the sector risk management agencies. And there is a DIB sector coordinating council and they are really the ones that sort of the uh the direct you know the tip of the spear here for interfacing with the dod so if you google the dib sector coordinating council and you look at companies that are members of the sector coordinating council the people who work directly with the dod as the srma you will see companies like lockheed martin you will see companies like Boeing and Northrop Grumman and L3 Harris and all of the mega primes are members of the sector coordinating council and their industry groups, right? Like AIA and NDIA and all of these names that we're very familiar with, right? For various reasons. That is where these elements of the national cyber strategy are flowing through in order to be enforced, and so a lot of the stuff in the cyber strategy lines up directly with this type of enforcement, the type of requirements, the type of assessment mechanisms that we have seen in the DIB for years now, using contract requirements, using standards aligned to NIST, using third-party assessments. These are all things that are exactly what the DOD has always done the cybersecurity strategy reinforces that approach. It reinforces the use and relationship of sector risk management agencies with their sector coordinating councils. So expect more of the same of what we had before the cyber strategy, but with a renewed emphasis after the cyber strategy. And that I think is very interesting 
because in February there was a House Armed Services Committee hearing and companies and their industry groups that are members of the Sector Coordinating Council got in front of the House Armed Services Committee and testified about the state of the defense industrial base. And some of the stuff that they brought up was talking about the burdensome nature of cybersecurity requirements and the burdensome nature of CMMC. There's some some weird tension going on here with the fact that the cyber strategy is going to continue leaning on those folks and their relationship in the ecosystem, but they're in front of Congress saying that that approach maybe isn't working the right way, which I find very, very interesting. One of the things that you had touched on just now was that the way that the national cyber strategy is formed is by the funneling of the thoughts and the input from organizations like NDIA, National Defense Industrial Association, and AIA, which is the Aerospace Industries Association. Yeah, that's just another one of the industry groups. It's a, it's a, one of the big ones, but it's one of the more common ones that you'll see. And at the um, House Armed Services Committee hearing, mm-hmm. Eric Fanning, who is the president and CEO of AIA, was there, and he you know had an opening statement um, that he provided. And it touched exactly on that, like the challenges that the dip's facing, focusing strictly on the dip. Um, and there's just a couple quotes from his statement, testimony, however you want to classify it, that I wanted to read off. And, uh, it, you know, just bear with me for a second. Yeah. So last month we talked about um, the inability or the capability of the the supply chain to maintain reserves for ammunition and or munitions during long-term long-range combat. If we were to go to combat with um, China and the, the Taiwanese Strait, and we said it was like a couple weeks. This is his quote: "Our current industrial base is maximized to meet peacetime needs. That means access excess capacity for surging is not always built into the system." We are optimized for efficiency, both from an infrastructure and workforce standpoint. With the possibility of conflict on the horizon, we need to consider how we resource and support the capacity and resiliency of the defense industrial base. Both Congress and the department have a role to play. So right there, just emphasizing to them that there are concerns for in wartime situations to maintain the level of output that's needed to keep up and and help us. Yeah. We talked about that in that, uh, that, that CIS, uh, analysis that came out last month, uh, where, you know, I think it was like if, if full blown conflict breaks out over Taiwan, like we basically have enough hypersonic missiles to last a week. And, you know, they're, they're out there now talking about, you know, pushing surge capacity in the industrial base to all time highs in order to supply Ukraine with, uh, munitions and armament, and we're not even in direct conflict with Russia, right? We're we're basically you know arming the Ukrainians in order to fight this war. And so, if anybody's curious about the details of the testimony or that situation, we'll link to uh, the annual Vital Signs report that NDIA puts out. They go through all these metrics and everything where they survey the health of the defense industrial base from their industry group membership. Very very insightful. Lots of interesting statistics. Uh, not just from the perspective of uh, you know cyber regulation, but from the health of the industrial base as a whole. And during this testimony, he says things like, 
Um, he, he touches on how burden, burdensome statutes and government policies drive up the cost and complexities of doing business with the federal government. Doing business with the federal cost of doing business with the federal government. We've heard that a lot in the CMMC land, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, so, it's always it's always an example where they're like, this imposes a cost and that drives up the cost of doing business with the government. And so that is true. But like we talked about last week, true arguments don't always win the debate because it's how we evaluate the arguments against each other. And so we keep hearing this argument. It is a true argument. People keep making the argument, testifying in front of Congress, making the argument. It is true. But CMMC continues to roll out. The national cyber strategy continues to say Keep doing more of what you've been doing. So there's there's definitely some tension here. And I'm going to go, lead with one more quote, and then I'm going to talk about some of the, the, the stats that he threw out there and you know, how sure. I numbers. Cybersecurity compliance is critically important, but additional cybersecurity maturity model certification, CMMC, ding, 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 word of the day, compliance requirements, while rooted in the important necessity of safeguarding sensitive information, create an additional layer of costs. According to our recent survey, more than three-fourths of AIA, AIA member companies are seriously or somewhat concerned about CMMC 2.0 implementation this year and may possibly leave the dip. Yeah. I think those are numbers that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody because those are very similar to what we heard from Vital Signs 2022 in that report. Um, yeah, it costs money. It costs time. It costs resources. It's a regulation. The nature of regulation is that it creates hurdles, right? Um, that That's the unfortunate trade-off that you get whenever you pursue regulations. But the uh, priority and the strategy of the administration now after all this collaboration across the government for the last two years is to continue pursuing that approach. And it's just very interesting how that's going to work because – the primary interface through which that approach is executed is through sector risk management agencies, their sector coordinating council, and members of the sector coordinating council are up there saying people are freaked out about the costs of what's going on. You know, one of the things that I picked out of the cybersecurity strategy was their section titled Enable Regulated Entities to Afford Security. Mm-hmm. And they say in setting new cybersecurity requirements, regulators are encouraged to consult with regulated entities to understand how those requirements will be resourced. And so a couple things to that. One is if you ask DOD, your ability to recover the cost for compliance is already built in because it's part of your overhead rate. It's part of your allowable cost. The part of the cybersecurity strategy that says that imposing cybersecurity requirements through contract requirements is a very efficient way of executing the strategy is exactly what the DOD has been doing. And so when, when the big mega primes get up in front of Congress and they say people are freaked out about the cost, the cyber strategy kind of points right back to them and says, what are you going to do about your supply chain? What are you going to do in order to make it more affordable? Because the DOD has cut CMMC down. They've made it a smaller standard. They've aligned it directly to the absolute minimum baseline. They have minimized the number of companies that even need to get external assessments. And the primes are still up there being like, whoa, a lot of people out there are freaked out. And they're like, you know, it just, I don't know how that's going to exactly shake out, but it is a very interesting situation in this critical infrastructure sector. Agree. 
um, we had talked about in the um, town hall questions and answers, um, the cost of an assessment. And Eric Fanning um, provided a story about an AIA member who went through an assessment or who was quoted for an assessment mm -hmm. and provided the figures to it and saying that this is the burden that these companies are having to deal with. So this is a 50, uh, or sorry, this is a certified woman-owned small business um, and has increased IT expenses by 50% since 2018. Uh, its IT department has doubled in size during that time span. So in four years, it doubled in size. Um, and because it relies on heavily on commercial airspace as well, the company is still recovering from the pandemic. So the financial burden that's already existent and then trying sure. to dig out of a mountain of financial debt or technical debt, you know, probably isn't the best thing. To remain compliant with CMMC requirements, the company sought an estimate for implementation and the quote received was huge. $150,000 just to get in the door for the assessment. This is a small business. Right. So, you know, I think uh, this happened, I think, early last year where this story about these like mega six figure assessment estimates came out and uh, no one's ever seen these estimates. I don't I don't no. doubt that they probably got this estimate, but we have not heard that joint surveillance assessments are costing that much. Mm -hmm. I have not heard updated estimates flying around. When we talk to our friends who are C3PAOs and people in the ecosystem and people who are engaging with them, you know, sort of shopping around for what's going to happen, I have not heard six-figure assessment costs. I routinely hear six-figure implementation, six-figure remediation, but I, I, I don't hear six-figure assessment costs. Now, you might still hear 50 grand, which is definitely a lot of money, but it ain't 150 grand. And so... This is a very interesting part about this testimony because you're like, where did that number come from? Is that a number from last year? Is that a recent number? I mean, when one of the other things that jumps out to me as you're reading this is you say, well, their IT costs have increased by 50%. I think everybody knows the amount of money that is spent by small businesses on IT is very small. So if you've increased the amount of money you're spending in that existing IT budget by 50%, that's not a lot overall. Now, if you've increased your overall spend by 50%, that's a much different situation. But as is well established, companies and in regulated industries have to spend money on dealing with those regulations. And there really hasn't been any money spent in the DIB on dealing with a lot of these regulations. So those costs are going to go up. I'm actually surprised that their costs only went up 50%, honestly, because a lot of companies in the DIB spend very, very little money on IT. Yeah, well, I was going to make a joke of what's 50% of zero because sure. you know, there has, and this isn't, you know, like trying to take jabs at anybody. There have been situations where I have going in, gone into meet with companies and there is nothing in place. Nothing. I think it's, yeah, it's very, very common. Yeah, it's very common. So, you know, I think the original estimate in the 2013 rule or the 2016 rule, it happened more than once where the DOD said, we estimate that the average business or the average small business is spending half a percent of revenue on mm -hmm. IT. And you're like, okay, well, if they're spending an increase of 50%, they're spending three quarters of a percent on IT. So, I don't know. We, I don't know what the numbers are because there's no citations in the in the opening statement of the testimony here. Sure. Haven't heard that assessments are that expensive. Um, that's, I think, that's not the tip of the iceberg on the cost. Sure. 
It's not firm fixed rate. It's not just 150K. You're good. This is just to get in the door, just to, to align, to match with a donor, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Then you're paying $500 per hour for lead assessors, $400 per hour for certified CMMC assessors. This is in the testimony? Yeah, this is in the testimony. And honorable mention is an added hourly charge for any additional assessment staff that's needed for the estimated four-week assessment. Four weeks. <laughs> I would love to know the details, man. I would love this, to know when I would love to know when it was when the quote was created. I'd love to know how it was scoped. Like when when did this happen? I remember hearing about this like early last year. That's and what so I, just, I was about to say. Like I think that the program's evolved so much, especially with the cap being released and giving more delegation to the assessment team and the and the lead assessor and the C three PAO. I don't think that this is a feasible quote here, right? And I think that that's what we were alluding to earlier in the in the show is that if you look at this, first of all, first of all, one of the major grumps was uh, gripes was that it has to be a four person team and it's going to take four weeks to do this. That was originally at the onset of CMMC. Yeah, this is where the old. estimations were, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I feel like this is. And so then it led to the suggestion from Eric Fanning that um, reducing the cost of compliance was the answer. Obviously, additional compliance requirements such as CMMC will further stress an already vulnerable supply chain and more companies will exit the dip due to real costs associated. Congress and the DOD must do more to lower the cost of compliance and offer assistance to small businesses that are critical to the dip. I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Yeah, I don't don't disagree. They they definitely should try to do everything they can. Check out Project Spectrum, everybody. I mean, there's a lot of uh, tools and stuff that are available, right? Because when you get DOD in front of Congress, they say, hey, we just heard from people who are writing these reports in the DIB. Things are not great out there, and they need you to do more. What are you doing? And they go, we offer these tools and services. We offer those tools and services. We offer these grant-funded programs. We offer these people who can help you. Bang, 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 bang. And then all of a sudden, we're back to square one. And then the program continues to move forward. I just... Last point I'll make about the testimony, read the vital signs report. The report is very good, but I don't think that the report would be as good if it were based off of single data points with no footnotes or citations. Yet the opening statement tries to make a case about the status of CMMC with a single data point without any footnotes or citations. So you wouldn't write the vital signs report by doing that. So we probably shouldn't try to characterize the current status of the CMMC program by doing that, especially when you're testifying to the House Armed Services Committee. Please, like, could we please get serious here and like treat both of these things like they're worthwhile? You are the members of the sector coordinating council. So, you know, maybe get a little bit of extra data before we start telling Congress what the situation is on the ground, you know? All right. So save the best for last. I gave the cyber strategy a pretty close read. I encourage everybody to give it a close read and decide for yourselves. But there is a obvious omission in the strategy where they don't really talk about the efforts that DOD has gone through with the CMMC program. They don't really talk about the CUI program broadly. They talk about regulation as a concept. They talk about market failures and the need to correct them through various incentives and regulations and corrections mm-hmm. at a very high level. Uh, but they don't really talk about anything uh, specific to that program. But they do talk about several elements that, in my mind, make CMMC. This is gonna. This is probably gonna be controversial for a lot of people. All right. So there are ten reasons why I think that 
CMMC is the ultimate embodiment of what the cyber strategy is trying to achieve at a high level, right? And I know that people are going to say the CMMC guy thinks that CMMC is the solution, but just hear me out, okay? I, so, I'm ready for this. So, so CMMC is a program that's attempting to regulate a critical infrastructure sector. And this is a fundamental theme of the cybersecurity strategy is that regulation plays a key role within the authorities of the government, specifically within critical infrastructure sectors. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about, the defense industrial base is a critical infrastructure sector. Mm -hmm. And this is stemming from the regulation of that critical infrastructure sector. So this is right in line with what the cyber strategy is getting after. Second, it is driven by a sector risk management agency in collaboration with industry, right? This is exactly what we talked about earlier. The DOD is the sector risk management agency for the defense industrial base critical infrastructure sector. Okay. And when we zoom out over the story of CMMC, they came up with CMMC 1.0. They got a bunch of feedback from industry. They went back to the drawing board. They came out with CMMC 2.0. They're going through rulemaking, and there's going to be a bunch more public comments submitted mm -hmm. on the program. That is that is collaboration with industry to come up with what the acceptable standard needs to be, which is exactly what the cybersecurity strategy says needs to happen. Okay. Right? So we are right in line with what they want and the method that they recommend for doing it so that it's not just a one-way discussion, right? Now, I know some people are going to say feels pretty one-way, but all, for all intents and purposes, this is pretty collaborative. They did change CMMC, and they are going through rulemaking, right? So it is more collaborative than I think people are willing to admit at first. The next reason is CMMC is directly aligned with NIST standards. There is no more Delta 20. There is no maturity processes. There is no more of the extra stuff bolted onto the outside of NIST 800-171 or NIST 800-172 or even the basic FAR requirements. Uh, and so as a result, there is no extraneous extra stuff. You are directly aligned with the approved NIST standards. And the cybersecurity strategy says we should be aligned with NIST standards whenever we are implementing or going through the creation of these regulations, exactly in line with what it wants to have happen. Right. So you tracking so far? I, I'm actually tracking. This is this is great. So the other thing about 800-171, which people don't like to admit, is that 800-171 is an outcome-based, goal-oriented standard. Right? The reason why people love the NIST cybersecurity framework, the NIST CSF, is because it talks about outcomes. It talks about goals. That is exactly what 800-171 does. It's just written in a peculiar, more NIST native way than the CSF is. But there is nothing prescriptive about 800-171. It has requirements in it like do multi-factor authentication. That is about as prescriptive as a baking recipe telling mm -hmm. you bake a cake. It doesn't tell you ratios. It doesn't tell you ingredients. It doesn't tell you steps. It doesn't tell you anything about how to bake the cake. It just tells you the outcome. It right. just tells you the goal. It just gives you 110 outcomes that you need to achieve. The whole reason why people complain about there not being enough guidance, which we talked about in the town hall questions from this month is because there is no guidance. 
It's just the goals. And that is exactly what everybody wants the regulations to include and be based on. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what the cybersecurity strategy asks for is a okay. NIST standard that is focused on goals and outcomes, which is exactly what 800-171 is doing. Okay. The next reason is that it leverages, CMMC leverages sector-specific, uh, so a little bit of jargon here, it leverages sector-specific operational collaboration and information sharing capabilities, right? This okay. is DCIS. This is yep. the Defense Cyber Crime Center. This is the Defense Industrial Based Collaborative Information Sharing Environment, DCIS. The reason why you have extra requirements in DFAR 7012 around 800171 is to facilitate your ability to report incidents to the Defense Cyber Crime Center and engage with DOD in the process of mitigating those events, investigating those events, having access to your facilities in the event that they want to come in and look around and see what happened, right? Mm -hmm. This process of receiving threat intel information, sharing incident reporting information back to them is exactly what the goal of the cybersecurity strategy is because that threat intel information sharing cycle is what enables the government to do the super cool stuff that is getting most of the attention in the cybersecurity strategy like hackback campaigns and disrupting cybercrime syndicates and providing you with indications of compromise for what's going on, you have to have that cycle established for you to receive the information and send the information. That is exactly what DOD has set up with DFAR 7012, DC3, and DCIS. Funnily enough, as the cybersecurity strategy goes, it doesn't really mention the DIB very much. They mention DCIS by name. They mention the Defense Industrial-Based Collaborative Information Sharing Environment by name in the national strategy. So it is a little bit closer to home than I think people are imagining as an example of the collaborative effect that they want to foster public-private partnership type of an approach. All right, we're halfway through, right? I think those are already some pretty compelling reasons. Yeah, and it it's crazy. Uh, how does your brain work, dude? <laughs> all right so this is like letterman's top 10 and we are at five and it only gets better from here so sure I so hear the rest I so halfway through better. right so I, so as you can tell these are sort of high level but sure. cmc is not some wayward anomaly off on the horizon far away from the cool kids who wrote the cybersecurity strategy it is right in line with what the strategy is asking for so okay so reason number six CMMC as a regulation, adding the enforcement mechanism on top of making sure that contractors have implemented their controls corrects what is known as a market failure. I think we've talked about this on the show before. The economic concept of a market failure is that the market does not reward a particular behavior by itself. And so as a result, it needs to be corrected. So right. this could be various examples like uh, back in the day, the market did not reward seatbelts in cars. And so there was a long, decades-long battle about should the government make car manufacturers put seatbelts in cars? And the manufacturers fought against it. People fought against it. There was this big debate. Meanwhile, like 50,000 people a year died because there were no seatbelts in cars. And so there was this market failure. The market did not reward car manufacturers for having these safety devices in their cars. And so we had to get into this battle about, are we going to regulate it or not? Are we going to, what are we going to do here? 
So cybersecurity is a sort of classic market failure. I mean, they say this in the strategy. It doesn't take, you know, very much looking around to realize that we, people say this all the time. The market does not reward security, right? The entire basis of CMMC was saying that uh, we need to make security part of the evaluation process of figuring out who the government's going to do business with, because traditionally the government has not rewarded security in the terms that it uses of doing business with its contractors, right? It's a market okay. failure. So CMMC corrects a market failure by leveraging what is known as procurement power and contract requirements. So we know that we're leveraging contract requirements for CMMC because that's how it's getting to their contractors. The cybersecurity strategy specifically says leveraging cybersecurity requirements through contract requirements is a very efficient and proven way of improving security and resiliency inside supply chains, right? Exactly what the DOD has been doing. And they say that using procurement power, which is the idea that the government can in the, the government can basically uh, induce behavior by suppliers by not telling them that they have to meet a certain standard, but telling their purchasers and their contract workforce that the government is only allowed to buy things that meet a certain standard. So as a result, because this is what they did with the software security executive order. They came out and said, we're going to use the procurement power of the government. Basically, we're not telling private software companies that they have to do anything. We're not allowed to do that. We're telling all of our agencies, you're not allowed to buy software unless they meet certain standards. And because the government buys so much stuff, it effectively moves the market to match, right? They're using their power of procurement. And that's exactly what DOD is doing. They're saying we're not willing to buy products and services and this and that and whatever it happens to be unless you meet a certain standard. They're using contract requirements. They're using procurement power. Two specific steps in the cybersecurity strategy that are specifically called out. The next reason is that CMMC harmonizes a rule and regulation with a corresponding assessment and audit mechanism. That is exactly what CMMC does, and that is a very important element that the strategy calls out that needs to happen. You need to harmonize your rules and regulations. You mm -hmm. need to harmonize them with the assessment and audits of those rules and regulations. That's exactly what we're doing with CMMC. Next reason is we're almost done. We got a lot of them here. It includes consideration for third-party providers, managed service providers, cloud service providers. Third-party providers are explicitly called out in the national cyber strategy as something that the government does not have a lot of existing authorities over-regulating right now mm -hmm. and that they want to work with Congress to expand the authorities. So that's going to be a very interesting debate coming up over the next few years. Are they going to regulate cloud service providers? Are they going to regulate managed service providers as an industry? Uh, well, CMMC is already one step ahead there because they are effectively kind of threading the needle here. There's something we talk about a lot about how are we going to evaluate a managed service provider or a cloud service provider in terms of FedRAMP moderate equivalency via these requirements and contract clauses directly in line with what the cybersecurity strategy is asking for. Okay, second to last reason. There is some amount of grant funding at play in the ecosystem. You hear DOD recommend people go to the Manufacturing Extension Partnership, the MEP centers, quite a bit. You mm -hmm. hear them recommend people going to the PTACs. You hear them say, go to Project Spectrum, like we talked about earlier. All of these things are grant-funded 
um, you know, uh, resources and tools that are available for facilitating the ability for companies to meet their requirements, help make it slightly more affordable, slightly more accessible. You know, uh, it kind of is a varied landscape of how effective some of those things are, but they are doing some of it. And that is exactly what the cybersecurity strategy asks the sector risk management agencies to try and do. Okay, last reason. Uh, CMMC is a program that is pursued in direct response to IP theft by China from the DOD in their supply chain. And the cyber strategy opens with how much of a threat China is as a result of exfiltrating IP from the United States. Mm-hmm. It's on the first page. And so when you look through what the cybersecurity strategy says and what it doesn't say about CMMC specifically, it doesn't take a lot of effort to connect the dots here and be like, this is exactly what the cybersecurity strategy is looking for. And I don't think it's a very difficult case to make. Uh, I don't know how easy that was for you to say as far as like the entire 10 reasons or how easy it was for you to connect the dots. But I think your case has been made. It makes like, sense. I, I, I mean, it's, I'm it, not even it a homer. I'm not jumping me, on the wagon here, dude. I, I'm, I'm serious. Like it's one of those things, you know, that meme where it's like, prove me wrong. Right. Jake <laughs> Horn sitting in the middle of a park at a table saying, see, we're going to ask embodies. We're going to have to ask producer Dustin for a new meme format here because I I look through. I mean, it even feels kind of goofy because it's it's an even number and it's 10. I didn't feel like those were a very big reach. Um, And I feel like, you know, there's a lot of turf wars and politics. I mean, people are people, Mm -hmm. right? Whether they're running government agencies or whether they're your neighbors. And Mm -hmm. so... Uh, there's some rivalry between CISA and DOD and all these agencies about what's going on. And CISA is technically in charge of everybody, but I'm the sector risk management agency over, over here and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of CISA fingerprints all over the document. They recommend like the CISA cross-sector performance goals that we talked about back in episode two. And um, I think they may have inadvertently made the case that CMMC is exactly what uh, sector risk management agencies should be doing. So, you know, maybe CISA done goofed here. That I don't know, dude. I feel like that, like in the background, I can see clearly now. <laughs> well, we'll you know see. I mean? like, dude, we'll see. Dude. We're going to we're going to turn that into a blog for sure. Uh, we'll see what people think. But um, that is insane you know. to think to think that it aligns that well. I think it lines up very closely. I went back through, I don't see anything in the cyber strategy that necessarily counters those things. There's a lot of other stuff that they talk about, like disrupting foreign adversaries and funding research and development and software supply chain and fostering a diverse and larger uh, cybersecurity workforce. None of those are mutually exclusive with these ideas and these ideas map directly to what CMMC is trying to do. I don't know if that's going to be a very popular blog post. It'll be, well, I think it'll be popular, but it might be a little controversial because there's a lot of people who I think were looking to the cybersecurity strategy as sort of like, what are we going to do instead? And I think that actually it it points right to what CMMC is trying to do. So did you watch the CSIS um, briefing today on the, Nash, the Natty strategy? Well, as of the time of this recording, when people are watching it, yes, I did. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, but so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you watched it a little bit closer than I did because I was sitting here trying to map these reasons why CMMC and the cyber strategy get along. Yeah, I wish that I had that idea in my head, but I decided that I just wanted to listen. <laughs> so sometimes, like, you know, obviously all the proof that you need is like in the writing, right? You, you go and you analyze the writing, whatever's documented. Um, but there is something to be told, especially when there's events like the CSIS briefing that took place today. Um, and um, Kimba Walden, who is the acting cyber director. Um, yeah the U.S. Hacking Cyber Director, she uh, said something that, that really resonated with me in that briefing today. And and it was this, and, and it kind of plays into what you were saying. She was asked a question from the audience, and the audience, uh, the question was, what is the main goal of this national cyber strategy? The answer was regulatory harmonization and establish, uh, establishing a minimum level of confidence in cybersecurity programs across all the boards. So where does this play in? CMMC, that's obviously a minimum standard being established to, uh, you know, one particular part of, of yeah. one, one particular industry. But we've also seen it spilling over now. Like we've seen CMMC-esque requirements, not necessarily CMMC program requirements, spilling over to DOJ, spilling over to higher ed, things mm -hmm. of that nature. So this, it, it may perfectly, they, they might not have mentioned CMMC. They might have just wrote it for CMMC. Maybe the Natty Strati is an ode to CMMC. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know, man. Right? I, you know, it, it's just one of those things. CMMC is like polarizing. They're like ode to CMMC too long. Change it to CMMC Natty CMMC is a polarizing Strati. topic for sure. I, right. I don't know why it's not mentioned in there specifically, but. Um, you know, we'll do our best to connect the dots for people. And if you agree, if you're watching this and you agree, let us know. If you disagree, let us know because, you know, it's just our analysis, but I think they're pretty that, close. That was crazy analysis. I, I, I don't. I don't care who you are. That that was crazy, dude. <laughs> well, sweet. Well, I think we'll call it there before I uh, before I ruin it. Before so. you ruin it, right? You can only go downhill from here. <laughs> my gosh. Hey, man, crazy yeah. February. I know we added this in because the cyber strategy came out at the end of March, but um, yeah, we got CS two coming up. We have. NIST 800-171 revisions possibly coming up. We're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about in the next episode, but I think we'll leave it off there. Of course, man. Uh, thanks to producer Dustin, obviously, and I'll see you in Huntsville. Always see ya.